Oh wow, there's some folks in here. <laughs> I opened the space real quick to uh, just cover whatever the pin tweet is talking about the national lab results, and hopefully uh, some folks who joined me in the last the last space will join as well. Um, I have a feeling this could be a big one. However, I don't know, folks. <laughs> uh, I've been pretty sick on the last one. I still feel a little sick, but. Hey, people joined and people really like what uh, what folks had to say. Um, and so, yeah, I'll add a few folks as well. Meanwhile, I don't know if we can put on music. I, I definitely don't think all well, we can just like want to listen to me. Oh, dope. Okay, we, we got Andrew joining. Yes, all right. What's up, Marsh? I think, I think I've seen you around. Come up if you want. All right, folks, a few minutes and we'll get started. And I don't know if we're going to open this up or not. We'll see. If it's, like, not too big, then fine. Uh, but at this, at this level, when there's, like, more than 25 people in the space, suddenly you get trolls and then people get not that interested. Oh, okay, we have people that are saying it's not a replication. So I... Uh, went out on the limb and I'm already getting checked. Okay. Bye. There's Andrew. All right. I guess we can get started. Hey, Andrew. Hey, thanks for, thanks for hosting again. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, Honestly, didn't didn't think about this before. Didn't expect this wasn't planned, and uh, I just wanted to kind of voice some some stuff and and have some folks explain this to me and maybe to other people. And I'll again pretend to be the, the dumb guy who's just asking questions. Apparently, this worked last time. So uh, you had a tweet that's pinned up to the top of the space for folks, and uh, you told me you were a little excited about this. Could you tell us why? <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, wow, this is, uh, <laughs> this is, this is wild. This is some, I mean, I don't want to say it yet, but I, I think this might be some real history. Let me, here. so, so um, let me like start you off if you, if you don't mind. In the last phase that we had, uh, we at the end asked, um, which was what, two days ago, <laughs> three days ago, I kind of lost count because I stopped sleeping. We asked each other, uh, kind of how many percentages uh, how many percentage this replicates or this LK is a real thing? Did you, after this last tweet, update that percentage in your mind? <clears throat> yeah, great question. So two days ago, I was like 10, 15% thought this could be a potentially viable material. Yeah. Um, that this simulation result, just to summarize, so a simulation result just came out an hour ago from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Um, and it is just a simulation, but... It, it reproduces what the authors claimed was happening uh, in their original publication from Korea. And um, the result is essentially exactly what you would hope to see <clears throat> if this material was indeed a superconductor that worked at high temperature. Um, so that's totally wild. This is like a totally wild in my mind, just because there's this, you know, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, it's one of the Department of Energy's national labs. Um, very well-respected scientists work there. You know, this was a, a serious simulation run on, like, Department of Energy supercomputers. Um, 
it's not a second experimental verification, right? But it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, I think it's very newsworthy that this could happen so quickly. And I'm signing up to Polymarket right now. This is not investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the markets are slow to react. <laughs> yeah, the markets are slow to react. Um, <laughs> and uh, apparently yeah. Morocco is kind of the lead appetite uh, place in the world. I saw uh, J Friedberg from the All In podcast uh, tweet something about Morocco. Um, so you're saying, so you want to talk uh, in the space or you want to go to the market? Um, I'm just kidding, of course. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned it's not a second experimental uh, replication. Could you tell us the difference between what we're seeing right now and what's, let's say, Iris is cooking or Andrew McCabe or McCallop is cooking? Is that not like that? Yeah, certainly. So um, this is very different from another team trying to replicate the experimental procedure. Mm. Um, and it's very different also from, I mean, there's grades of this, right? So, so Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, it's a very serious research institution. And this result is based on a simulation, meaning there's a model of the relevant physics here called density functional theory. And what this does is it models what is the allowable set of energies or, or how do electrons how can electrons move through a material given a certain kind of structural composition, right? So using the simulation software, they um, made a model of the material. And the simulation results were that they were actually very surprising. In, in the paper itself, um, just, I have it open right here. Uh, yeah, remarkably, remarkably, I find a set of basically energies uh, right where you'd find <laughs> energies if it was a superconductor. And so, you know, the author is an academic and a professional, um, but they're expressing surprise at this as well, in, in the sense that this is not expected, right? Like you have this copper lead material with uh, sulfate and oxygens and so forth. And, um, you know, if you have this, basically what the Korean authors said happened was that copper atoms percolate into the crystal structure and they attach to a place where there's normally lead. And when that attachment occurs, the crystal structure distorts slightly. You can kind of think of it like if you had a cube made of toothpicks and then you twist the cube a little bit, right? It puts all of the connections under a bit of tension. And it's, it's this structural distortion of the original crystal that creates these new energy levels that exist and it's in those energy levels that you get this amazing superconducting phenomena. And so there's another really interesting thing here that, that does corroborate, or corroborate the experimental work that was done in Korea. It's that there's different places the copper can go. Some of them are more likely than others, right? Um, and for this twist to occur in just the right way, the copper actually has to attach to a less likely location. And so that, that explains why this material is so hard to develop, so hard to synthesize, is that, you know, it naturally doesn't want to form this kind of material, but it sometimes can. <clears throat> and, and that's the art of the preparation and, and likely why the sample quality was, or sample purity was low, why you didn't have a fully levitating sample in the original publication photos and so forth. So there's, just, there's a lot here that really supports what the Korean paper published. 
Um, it's not like 100% verification, but it's shocking. It's, it's totally shocking that there's a lot here to be optimistic about. I, I'm excited. <laughs> and this is getting uploaded to... Oh, first of all, I'm also excited. I'm very excited. Uh, the, uh, the author uh, is a single author, correct? Uh, Sinead Griffin, I believe. Uh, he's posting this on Twitter two hours ago with, with a gif of, of Obama mic drop. Um, which, uh, yeah, pretty incredible. It, it so, works. The uh, let me just uh, say the one thing, and then introduce some other folks on stage. Uh, Andrew, um, it works along the sides of like the craziness we've seen surrounding LK99, right from the last space, and then the lore that we have Atopai weaving through this, and the sudden breakthrough that was only in the Korean first paper, and then uh, no mention of the quartz to break in. There's a, a bunch of stuff surrounding this, and uh, the way Sinead. Uh, announced this also on Twitter, I believe this like this dropped. I was just like fit to how we're seeing this explode um, in in the memosphere. I want to say hi to Marsh and and Ben up on stage. There were at least some of them in the previous uh, uh, space as well. Are you guys uh, reading this paper as well tonight? What's going on, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I'm still working my way through it, trying to give it the attention it deserves. Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, and Marsh, what's up? Yeah, I'm um, too much of an amateur to really understand this stuff, but I, what I do understand is that there are a lot of very smart and knowledgeable people who are, uh, you don't usually see scientists behaving this way. And I, I just had a question, like, I mean, this is a simulation, and simulation's never as good as, you know, the, the real floating rock or, or whatever um, metric you want to use. So, like, what are the chances this is wrong? That, um, you know, the, they're simulating something, but they didn't quite, um, they got what the answer they were you know, asking for instead of the answer that we're going to get with real atoms involved. Interesting. So one thing which is, like, I think for sure, 100% a good conclusion of the paper is um, they did confirm the, like, lattice contraction. Basically, one of the main theories that the Korean team has is that the, the copper atoms, when you substitute, you know, at a 1 to 10 ratio, um, it results in a contraction of the lattice. Basically, the crystal shrinks, which puts extra strain, blah, blah, blah. Um, and this, the, the type of simulation they're doing, DFT, using VASP, which is, uh, stands for, like, Vienna Ad Initio something, something. Um, it is particularly good at that, which is like calculating the the size of a unit cell of a crystal, things like that. that that's like a pretty rudimentary thing you can do with a simulation that's very, very well benchmarked. And um, so like at the very least, it corroborates that. And that is like pretty important. Um, and then there's, you know, other more and more sophisticated conclusions in the paper. Um, and you can kind of pick and choose how many of those you want to believe um, or yeah, but I mean, just at the very least, it, it confirms that. All right, I wanna I wanna say hi to Sam uh, up on stage. Hey Sam, feel free to introduce yourself uh, from your bio. It seems that you work at the same place. Hi. Is... Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you fine. Hi. Yeah, I'm Sam Blau. I'm a research scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Lab and a colleague of Sinead. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the paper yet, but I wanted to at least say that Sinead is an excellent. A uh, computational scientist with years of experience in computational material science, and oh, yeah. she uh, 
if she put this out, then she's done her due diligence, and this should be taken seriously. Um, I, so. I will just say that uh, Sinead is also welcome here if you want to text her and you think she'll be up for this. Uh, if you don't think and she wants to not talk, that's also also very okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I can email uh, her. I tried to message her on Twitter, but she has her, yeah, uh, her message. She's probably uh, getting a lot of emails right now. I would expect. I believe yeah. one, one thing I just want to say is that you know, you're talking about, oh, is this simulation uh, an accurate representation of reality, which is a very important question to ask about any simulation. Uh, there are underlying approximations built into density functional theory because we cannot exactly solve the many electron Schrodinger equation beyond hydrogen. Uh, intro to quantum mechanics and physics ends with the hydrogen atom because it's the last exactly solvable things thing. So certainly there are approximations here, um, but I am guessing that she chose a level of theory that she thought was, was sufficient. Another approximation is that this is like one specific unit cell structure. And I don't think we yet know exactly the, like the atomic structure of the material. So she, I believe probably took the, I know there is a structure in the materials project, which is a um, scientific endeavor that we've both uh, contributed to of a similar structure, but with one of the elements swapped. So I'm guessing that she took that structure from the materials project and, and put in the right elemental composition but uh, certainly there is uncertainty about the exact structure of the material, which uh, is critical to the certainty about the calculations. That's great. With Sam, that, I will, uh, I'll, I'll hit her up, but yeah. Awesome. Uh, Sam, I, I wanted to uh, welcome you to also stick around as we may have some other folks and maybe some questions and you sound uh, knowledgeable. And we've had these spaces before and many people kind of prefer this to just like reading text. Uh, so welcome to stick around. Uh, I want to say, Andrew, uh, as you know, in the few days that this insanity has uh, unfolded on all of us, uh, we've seen multiple replication attempts. Uh, at this point, there's oh, was it battleground or something like, like uh, there's tables full of people replicating with references. Some of them, uh, folks, I just mentioned Elsa in in the audience. Some of them are from the Chinese internet, some of them from the Korean internet, uh, some of them on Twitter, a lot of them on Twitter. But there are definitely replication attempts that are happening. Some of them even show potential promise, even though we, you know, quote-unquote, waiting for video. This adds to these attempts as well, right? So, like, many of the folks who are trying to replicate aren't able to. We've seen Professor Awash, I want to believe, uh, from India, and they also released a paper today saying that their replication, the first replication attempts did not succeed. Um, have you folks in touch had a chance to, to look at that uh, effort and um, comment on that if you want? Honestly, Professor, I, I, I want. I'd briefly comment, just a quick comment, and just a note to Sam, I just messaged you uh, the paper link to your DMs. Um, so in a moment, maybe you could comment on the people that uh, reviewed the paper. It says some acknowledgments there. If you know any of those names, it'd be interesting. Um, I, I just say that so the at-home hobbyist replication efforts, I think, are real valiant, uh, really valiant, you know, sort of garage level like science, and that's awesome. Um, I wouldn't index too heavily on those. Um, my personal take is that I, I would put a lot, I mean, this is a large claim, so it requires extraordinary evidence, and that, that would come from validation from multiple well-known groups at national labs, not just in the States, but in other countries too. Um, so I just kind of like put that out there as like a, this is a this is a good simulation from a very well known place, and I 
that's I'm very excited for that. Um, people doing this at home or at work, uh, where their main line of work isn't in superconducting, material science, and applied physics, and condensed matter physics, and so forth. I, I just say it's like um, that's a very long shot. I went, I w I went index too heavily on those panning out or not personally. Um, but th I think that is awesome that it's something people are trying to. I, I think that's really commendable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and to um, to cover the other application attempts that are also put on archive, uh, I I think I saw. I need to go and find. So I'll let uh, Ben maybe react to some of the stuff that Sam said, if you like. Uh, but there was a replication attempt from India that did not succeed, and apparently their um, material that they produced was a little heavy or something like this. And then some of the attempts on Twitter were referenced in some comments as well. And I don't know if, if uh, the simulation that we're seeing right now um, probably extends or, or adds to that, but you had something that you mentioned at the end of the last space, and you said that like replication attempts that don't succeed, like failures, like we seen Professor Sun, I think from China. I think I posted on, on my uh, on my feed saying that they w weren't able to replicate to also not over-index on that, um, and I gotta wonder, like, what's um, if you're updating your percentages, what is the next thing that you would like to see? Like a floating visual thing? A paper in archive? Like what would, what would put you at 100? Yeah, good question. So, so the biggest thing right now is having a really well-verified measurement set up for all the other measurements they make to determine this superconducting property, right? Things like heat capacity, things like resistance, but down to a very, like, very fine resolution. Um, on their instrumentation and, and a very well-known sort of calibration setup and so forth. I think videos about things floating, like those are really compelling as, as um, messaging tactics or, or messaging material to say, look everyone, this is a really magical thing. But I think like the brass tacks comes down to like a, okay, here's like our serious professional applied physics research laboratory. Here's all our million dollar calibrated equipment. Here we're gonna like do this experiment a whole bunch of time and test a bunch of samples from this big batch production run, and look, we found this kind of like consistent properties in this fraction or yield of the batch and so forth. That's the kind of thing where you're like, ah, okay, all right, but like, that's a done deal then, um, and that takes a while. So you know, I, I'm I'm trying to be super enthusiastic and express my enthusiasm without saying it's a done deal. But it's you know, I'm I'm pretty, I'm pretty stoked. I'm pretty excited. Uh, ben, are you are you also on that level of protective? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say this uh, in in like betting market or prediction market terminology, I would say like this yeah. shifts me like five to ten percent towards yes. I think it was like fifteen to twenty last space. Maybe I'm like twenty five to thirty now. Um, yeah. Maybe higher. I don't know. I'm still processing. Um, but I, yeah, I would say the biggest thing what we might see in the next week or so is if if what the information is true that they've shipped this sample to other labs, um, just getting another lab who may actually know more about superconductors than, than you know, the people uh, on the preprints to, um, to just like redo the measurements. Um, and if they get similar things, um, that would like shift me a lot more than, than this even. Yeah. Uh, to, to add to this, I think I saw today that uh, the original 
when I say original, <laughs> that's debatable as well. Like there's multiple papers, but uh, the last, at least, I think, the last English paper from Hyun Tak Kim, uh, the sixth author paper, okay, uh, this was updated also today, right? So um, we had some debate whether or not, you know, this is a, uh, this is another re replication of superconductor, like, um, we had before and, and got retracted. Uh, and many folks pointed the fingers at like the disorder between the papers. And uh, we're now seeing updates to the original one. We're seeing different uh, US-based labs, the China-based labs uh, doing replication. Some of them communicating. A lot of them are obviously not communicating. I think we saw some um, anecdotal evidence, I think on Twitter, that, that uh, some suppliers ran out of lead update. Uh, but again, nobody's like actively like speaking, but we definitely see a good amount of potential applications. And I haven't seen a lot of like, this will never work takes. I haven't seen a lot of papers that say, hey, we definitively proved that whatever LKL 99 uh, was was about cannot like physically happen. Uh, and, and to me, this also updates. Uh, Marsh, you have you heard enough? Go ahead, man. I keep hearing about heat capacity. Like, what is it and how does it relate to superconductivity? It's not intuitively obvious to me how they would be connected. I can give a quick answer there. It's kind of cool. Um, uh, I'll use a uh, analogy actually. I used it with a friend the other day. Um, so heat capacity. You know, you think of it like how much energy you put in to move the temperature by a certain amount, right? Um, the thing is, as materials get colder and colder, um, the heat capacity goes down. And you can almost imagine it like, I'm going to suppose a restaurant is closing down, okay, and, uh, you know, the closing off sections, right, that are empty. And so how full the restaurant feels, depending on how many people enter it, um, it's easier to feel full in a smaller room, right, with more people. So the heat capacity is going down, the kind of available space is shrinking. The, in other words, the degrees of freedom are being frozen out in the crystal lattice, so there's no more ability to, say, vibrate or, or store energy in different um, modes. And uh, when things start to superconducting, what happens is this uh, another sort of state opens up. You know, you kind of think like the restaurant's closing down, the heat capacity's decreasing, it's shrinking, it's getting colder, it's getting colder. And then when it gets like to midnight, like the downstairs nightclub opens up and now there's this basement that opens up, right? And that basement's like the superconducting, I guess, conduction pathway. And so now suddenly the, the heat capacity will spike a whole bunch because it's nicely declining curve and then it spikes vertically all at once at the critical transition temperature, uh, and then it starts to fall back down again. Um, so that's something that's definitely observed in lots of superconductors. It's kind of one of the, the tells. Um, it wasn't observed in the original Korean paper. They had an explanation for that in terms of some elements of superconducting theory I'm not as familiar with, but um, sounds like in Sinead's publication just now, she mentions actually that some of those interpretations are also supported by her simulation results um, and yeah, uh, I, I, I'm sure someone on the call actually probably understands that area of sort of spin coupling of electrons, electron-electron spin coupling better than I do. So I don't want to like give people wrong information, but um, yeah, sort of there was this telltale thing we kind of, you know, we look for original paper wasn't found due to this explanation, this proposal of a theory that, that uh, could explain that feature. And then that explanation was also supported in this recent simulation. So I feel like that's kind of smoothed things out a bit. So yeah, it's so. like, a tell that something important changed in the structure of the material, almost like changing from water to ice or something, but 
not uh, that dramatic in terms of uh, you know the shape of the material or the, the state of matter, but something important changed about the crystal structure. Is that correct to say? Uh, certainly, yes. Um, for this simulation result and the original author's proposal of the mechanism, uh, those are in alignment with how the substitution of copper into the crystal lattice um, creates this distortion of that crystal, uh, like, a, like a cube kind of getting twisted. And now it's that rotation or that twist that enables these sort of new conduction pathways to form, uh, which we measure as superconductivity. Um, I'm going to check, uh, while I try to wrap my head around what else we need to see and what else we may see tonight, because uh, it's Monday, so it's been around a week, um, maybe a few more days than the original paper, um, and the world is starting to catch up. We're seeing more and more inbound, we're seeing more and more uh, re requests for uh, information and, and trending things. Um, I want to see manifolds. Uh, I said to I said this to folks in the last space as well. Manifold actually has manifold markets is like the, the prediction markets. There's poly market as well. Many folks just go there to update and get updates. That's like on its own. In in addition to Twitter, it's a great like information feed. So I found quite a few stuff from there. Um, I don't want to take a speculation or ask folks on stage whether or not they can predict anything, right? Actually, a colleague from the um, uh, Cheyenne uh, Dwarknaf, um is on the call, I think. He might have requested to speak. I'd love, you know, there's definitely some real condensed matter physicists in this call by now, probably. Mm -hmm. Send me a DM, DM if you'd like to comment here, because uh, I, I, I want to get the most information, the most accurate as we can. Yeah, uh, Andrew, I do use co-host. Uh, feel free to bring somebody up um, by just like searching them if they would like. Ben, on top of that, uh, there's um, the person who uh, who created the. I think it's like the highest volume market on manifold, perhaps on any prediction market in the world right now. Um, I think quantum, our, our quantum observer is currently on the call. So if you want to uh, oh, really? manifold market, you can maybe call him up. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh. Quantum, if you want, come up here. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about the, the call. Um, Andrew, do, do you see the person you said? Sorry, I, I don't think I can see any requests from them. I don't. Uh, if you just request to speak, yeah, I'll see your name. You can also search them, Andrew, if, uh, if you, want. you want to go request them. There's like a little search and you can ask for them. Um, Just a sec, folks. Okay, well, a lot of people just joined, so I guess I'll give the quick recap right so far. Um, yes, if you. that's a good idea. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so just a couple hours ago, um, a material scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab uh, put a paper on archive that had actually been circulated for review among some of her colleagues. Um, and the simulation, it was a simulation of the Korean original team of what they proposed as this method of superconductivity at high temperatures, right? And so the original Korean team, they had this um, material, this lead apatite crystal, 
And the gist was that, you know, it's this kind of material you can bake, you can prepare pretty easily. And there's this very subtle effect where copper atoms are entering this crystal lattice. And by entering, substituting in where lead atoms normally go, it creates this interesting structural distortion in the crystal. And that structural distortion kind of opens up this kind of crazy um, conduction pathway whereby electrons can start to travel with zero resistance. Um, so that model, that toy model, was put into simulation software uh, running what's called density functional theory, which is you know a method of simulating these crystal structures in different materials and finding out you know what are the electronic structures in here, right? What, we kind of try to solve the Schrodinger equation uh, through a series of approximations, um, but it's a very well you know it's well benchmarked software, and this is a professional scientist at a national lab run by the Department of Energy, running you know high grade or professional quality simulation software on a supercomputer. So, so you know. Very, very legitimate kind of procedure. Um, and the author was quite shocked in the paper. They were saying it's, you know, remarkably, what we found was all of these interesting, um, I, they're called bands, energy bands, but what they really are conduction pathways in the crystal that are completely aligned with what you'd expect to see if this material was a superconductor. Um, and it was really interesting to read the paper, which I think I put a link to in a post. Um, and this is, you know, I've gone from cautiously optimistic or wouldn't this be cool, isn't this a great time to learn about material science to, uh, oh, wow, holy crap, this is a really big deal. Um, and I'll, I'll just put this out there. So, you know, the authors uh, in the original paper talk about how it's hard to synthesize material. The density functional simulations also predict this material is hard to synthesize because the copper isn't falling into the most likely location, right? It's falling into a higher energy level, which is actually hard to reach. Uh, sorry, it's falling into, yeah, yeah, that's right, sorry. The, the lowest energy or the most likely configuration is not the kind that produces superconductivity. So you, it would, you would think it's hard to synthesize. Um, and I'll just throw this out there for context. So the last time this happened was in 1986, right? Um, it was with a material called yttrium barium oxide, and that won the Nobel Prize. Um, and, you know, at first, that material seemed to be very not too impressive from an engineering perspective. It, it, you know, it failed under even weak magnetic fields. It was very hard to produce, all this kind of stuff. But the fact that someone found that material and could start working on it in terms of engineering improvements and making it better over time, that's taken you know, 30 years. But today, we have high-temperature superconducting tape. And when we say high-temperature, I mean 70 Kelvin or negative 200 degrees Celsius. But that's better. That's great because it works with liquid nitrogen, right? So that has unlocked like all these new kinds of amazing technologies in the world, like fusion energy, uh, and this which is I work on. Eighty-six and, and, and IBM. Yeah, that was nineteen eighty-six, right? So, yeah. so th this kind of thing has happened before. Um, it's not unprecedented, um, and this isn't verification experimentally, so it's still more to come there. But, uh, but yeah, this is very exciting. So I thought I'd just summarize why I'm excited. So welcome to all the new folks in space, uh, and welcome Ben and Andrew and, and Sam on stage. There's a few other folks requesting access. Feel free to DM me and kind of uh, maybe tell you what, what you're doing. We had a few trolls and folks who come up and uh, they're or not. Uh, Andrew, last place, you had a great uh, recap of what superconductors are getting used today. And I think some of them are this type 2 superconductor that you just talked about, A6. Um, could you give us a, like a brief, but possibly with 10%, like if, if you upgrade your previous 10%, uh, 
um, you know, stake based on this news. So give us a 10% more exciting thing about the potential superconductors uh, in room temperature and uh, ambient pressure. Um, and just before, before Andrew, you, you go, I want to say hi to Alex uh, Kaplan as well. Hey, Alex, welcome to the stage. Thanks. Hey, Alex. <laughs> uh, we have Alex and Alex, and I think Andrew McCallop, uh, while he's baking his reputation attempt on Twitch, he may join as well. Uh, so, Andrew, can you give us like a like a layman's take of what superconductors are basically are, and also where, where they're used today, and uh, what could improve with ambient and uh, room temperature ones? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, uh, so what a superconductor is, it's a material that can let current flow with zero resistance. And so normally, to transmit electrical power over any distance, you lose some energy as heat along the way. You can think of this heat, it's like tax, right? The government always taxes every transaction. Whenever you make money, whenever you spend money, whenever you move money, there's a tax. And it's the same for true it is energy, right? Electrical energy. Every time you generate it, there's losses as heat. When you transmit it, there's losses as heat and so forth. So a superconductor is like a duty-free, right? Where you know everything's tax-free, okay? It's way cheaper. Um, when you produce the energy, there's no losses. When you transmit it, there's no losses. And so it's, it's kind of awesome like that for energy production. Um, it has other cool properties too, right? Like it can perfectly expel magnetic fields um, and, and some other things like that. Um, so, you know, one place this would be kind of cool, I was actually reading about this today, um, is if you had such a material, right, you could make a... Uh, cell phone that could basically pick up signal from anywhere, right? Um, it would be so sensitive, okay? So it's like the sensitivity of antennas, right? Like an antenna works by basically catching some magnetic field that's passing by. Um, it induces some current, right? Um, but uh, there's resistance in that coil and there's background noise and so forth. And so you could think of this in one small area, designing these like insanely sensitive sensors and antennas that you could use in your phone quite cheaply that would be widely abundant, mass-produced. Another, another place um, you might recognize this is like an MRI, like a magnetic resonance imaging machine. So that produces this amazing volumetric 3D image of the human body completely non-invasively, right? This is a total, totally like a miracle kind of future tech type thing that now we're just used to. So the, the sensitivity limit on MRI is in large part established by, you know, how sensitive the antennas are that can pick up the magnetic signal radiated by different parts of your body. Um, and brain, so, just just very important. Brain, body yeah, and totally. brain, <laughs> body and brain, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you could think of, you know, well, we can make this twelve times more sensitive as an antenna with superconductor, uh, and you could get twelve times better resolution in the body, right? Like really sub, you know, uh, at the sub micron scale, perhaps, uh, which would be pretty exciting. So, is um, is the power the only improvement there, or would something like uh, a cost uh, to keep the super magnets not very, very cold will also go down potentially, making this more available because that's MRIs right. are stupid expensive right now, right? Yeah, 100%. That's really what it is, right? So a lot of these things don't make sense because right now you have to use cryogenics like liquid nitrogen to cool things down to that temperature, which is super expensive and totally unwieldy and only really makes sense in like kind of really custom physics research applications kind of stuff, right? It's not very common. Um, so th this would make it like, like say, like say yeah. fusion reactors, stuff like fusion that. reactor for yeah. sure. So, you know, one of the biggest design trade-offs in fusion energy for magnetic confinement fusion, which is things like tokamaks or stellarators. And that's like the big plasma donut 
is that you have a really hot plasma that's a million degrees Celsius, and you have to get this magnetic coil like kind of wrapped around it as close as possible so you can generate a strong field. But that magnetic coil has to stay at like negative 200 degrees Celsius, right? Um, which is very difficult. So having things that work at higher temperature, there's another cool thing here, right? So the, our current generation of superconductor, superconductors that go into things like particle accelerators, that go into things like fusion energy, quantum computers, and so forth, they're all made out of rare earth metals, right? Rare earth metals are super expensive, and they don't come from everywhere on the planet, okay? So, like, on the other hand, right, this is made out of lead. Lead is cheaper than copper, okay? It's, like, 20 or 30% the price of copper. I might be kind of wrong there, but it's, like, a good fraction of copper, right? And so, you know, superconducting room temperature, like, superconductors that work at ambient pressure that are as cheap as wire or cheaper than wire that could be produced, you know, en masse. I mean, I, I don't want to get people's too, the, too hopes up. Well, it's just, well, I'm well, just trying I to paint just, the picture. This is a big deal. I would just extend your, your sentence there. Uh, the cheap as wire, but also could become wire, right? Like we could get wires that are effectively not losing heat. I think in the last space, uh, you said something about 10 to 15% of all energy we generate in the United States just goes to waste, just into heat. Is that correct? It's about five to seven percent. I've heard five like fifty percent is lost in uh, transmission with like transformers and things like that. That's a great point. So transmission line losses are one thing. Yes, very good point. But there's also transformer losses, right? Yeah, hundred percent. So transformer is what steps down voltage from high voltage to low voltage. Uh, also generation. So there was this. German experiment, and you know these, this stuff is expensive, so it's an experiment. But they refitted a generator with superconducting tape, and it generated thirty-six percent more energy, which was pretty exciting. I, I'm going to yield the floor a little bit, Alex. I think other people yeah, have lots add, of cool stuff to add to. I want to add. I want to hear from Alex as well. Cool. Hey, everybody. Uh, nice to meet you guys as well. I think uh, it'd be fun to talk a little bit about the science here of superconductors. What are they? How do they work? They're very odd materials and extremely finicky because, as Andrew was explaining, you lose a lot of, uh, of energy in these electrons to heat as they encounter resistance. You can basically think of electrons in a conductor as moving around freely in a sea of metal ions. I think in copper, they kind of just bounce around. So the key in a superconductor is how can they flow through this lattice without bouncing into anything? or being paired in such a way that they flow with zero resistance. And I, I kind of give a hint to it there, but uh, one thing to know about electrons is that as particles, they're called fermions, and fermions have to obey something called Pauli's exclusion principle, where no two fermions can be at the same energy level. Now, in superconductivity, as well as superfluidity and liquid helium, and some other exotic states of matter, you can have some weird things happening um, when... Uh, you're dealing not with fermions, but bosons. And bosons aren't subject to Pauli's exclusion principle, and therefore can occupy the same energy state. So at very low temperatures, uh, bosons are known to, to occupy the same energy state in what's called a boson-stein condensate. Now, the trick in the superconductor is how do you get these electrons to act more like bosons? And uh, it happens through what are usually called Cooper pairs. Um, in Bardeen, Cooper, and Schrieffer theory of superconductivity. Um, BCS theory has a pretty funny story of, I think, Bardeen had a stack of unsolved problems on his desk. 
in physics and the top one was how do superconductors work and he assigned it to Cooper and Cooper went and figured it out and they published a paper. Uh, so there, there's some fun stuff there in the history of physics. But a Cooper pair is a very kind of weird thing and, and that really gets into the heart of this preprint and we can talk about some of the findings and proposed mechanisms. Um, but Cooper pairs are really fundamental for most understanding of superconductivity and that they're how electrons can pair in a lattice. And the key is, the way it was first described to me is, think about a mouse running across a waterbed. And it sounds very weird, but, but give me a second. Uh, in the mouse's track, you'll leave small ripples uh, in, the, in the bed. And if you put a marble in some of those ripples, some of them may kind of, this is a very stretched analogy, of course, but some of those ripples may push the marble along the track as well. And in that sense, you kind of have these electrons that are um, interacting with each other through vibrations in their surrounding material. Now, in an actual superconductor, the surrounding material is a lattice. Um, uh, you know, think of a regular superconductor. It's just uh, a crystal of a bunch of different atoms that are vibrating slowly. Vibrations in a lattice are called phonons, and those are the particles of heat. And so in BCS theory, you have electrons that are paired with other electrons that are mediated by phonons, or heat particles. This is one of the reasons why superconductivity is highly temperature dependent as these phonon electron interactions are relatively weak. And if you have a lot of heat, then it'll disrupt any Cooper pairing. So I hope that gives you a little bit of background into reading some of the discussion in this paper where it proposes some really interesting mechanisms for BCS theory and Cooper pairing of the electrons uh, based on the structure of this crystal. And I really encourage you to uh, read the discussion section here because it's, I think, extremely insightful in uh, using some of the results of this crystal structure and as well as uh, the DFT calculations to explain how this could be feasible and honestly gives me a fair amount of confidence that this, this research is pretty sound. So, Alex, uh, thank you for that. Um, and then at least I found out about LK99 uh, from your first thread. And I know many, many other people as well. And I think it blew up a little bit. You went a little viral. And I think you, you kind of taught the algorithm that this is happening. Uh, and then I followed you kind of um, uh, around. And then I saw that you, I don't know if you said disillusioned. Like, it, it's been like three days, right? But I did yeah, see that yeah. you have upgraded towards a no. Yeah. I mean, uh, and the then... papers itself by, by Kim, Lee, and Kwan were a total mess. And yep. there were some, you know, nice words put out by physicists that they were like unconventional, but the results reported in there were just like laughably bad. You know, that I, I don't know if you saw the condensed matter theory at the University of Maryland said they would have given this paper an F minus if an undergraduate handed it in. So there were a lot of reasons to not like the paper and, and as then, you read it more closely. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we covered uh, many reasons as to why this potentially is because of the surprise and somebody, the author on the first one, uh, not appearing in the second one, etc. Uh, however, you then upgraded towards we're back again with this release. Uh, and tell us about your percentage where you are right now, the LK99 is unobtainable. Yeah, guys. I am here to announce we're back. Uh, no, <laughs> With what? I mean, give us, give us like a percent. Yeah. Sign. <laughs> Look, the important thing to understand is extraordinary claims require truly extraordinary evidence. We have no physical proof that this thing is a superconductor. We have some physical proof of diamagnetism, where it opposes magnetic field lines. 
uh, from, you know, some sketching replication efforts on the internet. I'll say it again. If you want to know what is true, you can wait for replication. There's clearly a lot of great experimentalists working on it. But if you want the gossip and the insight, I think that this is probably the strongest update we've had since the original papers were published. Can I, can I, I say it for a second? Yeah, go ahead, Andrew. Um, and just two things, and then I want to hand over to Sam Blau. I just want to make the comment that I'd push very strongly back against this notion that those original papers were laughably bad. I think it's very easy to have certain assumptions on what things should look like when they're published in top journals and you know, really recognize there's a big diversity of access to resources and access to, well, I mean, not access, but things like growing up in an English-speaking country that can contribute to how someone's work is presented in a professional scientific context. Um, yeah, we so, may be talking about Nobel laureate here. Um, yeah, totally, totally. So look, these, I, these results warranted serious consideration and investigation. And I think it's, it's easy to get caught up in a pessimistic mindset that looks to like, discourage or exclude people from claims of legitimacy. Um, I think, yeah, th there's plots that could have been formatted more nicely and there was noise floor on their instrument, which was getting in the way of better measurements. And I agree that there's problems to take there, but like, yeah, <clears throat> you know, this isn't really like a, uh, that wasn't just something that was serious and, and now it is. I, I think it was all, always worthy of pretty serious consideration. I also want to let Sam Blau speak because he, I think, is a colleague of Sinead who just published the simulation results earlier today. And that's, I think, what we're really excited about right now, too. Yeah, Sam, there's uh, more folks joining the space since before, so feel free to please introduce yourself again. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. Thanks so much. Yes, I'm Sam Blau. I'm a research scientist at LBL. But I mostly want to introduce um, Sham Dwaraknath, who is a former colleague of mine who uh, has worked closely with Sinead in the past. This is uh, this scientific area is much more within his realm of expertise than mine, and I uh, asked him to join the space. He's just finished reading the paper and I think might have some thoughts for us. Hey, Sean, how are you? Hey, all. Thanks for the introduction, Sam. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to start off by, like, acknowledging that at the end of the day, Sinead is the, like, of Sam, myself, and Sinead, she is the closest expert to really understanding sort of how the superconductivity or the mechanism of superconductivity could come out in this material. But I want to touch upon a couple of things that I think that she pointed out that are really important for this discussion. Um, and they sort of start at the base level of like what these calculations were designed for fundamentally and sort of the approximations that are in them and how she walks a, a very fine line in terms of how she explains the phenomena and sort of the limitations of the calculations. Um, there are fundamental assumptions like this is a perfect crystal. Um, in reality, most materials we make are never perfect. Whenever you're trying to dope one material into another, one element into another material, the combinations there are massive. I mean, if you want to think about this, like one gram of silicon has on the order of 10 to 21 atoms. So, you know, you have a couple grams of this material, you have something like 10 to the 20 choices that you have to permute. It's just massive numbers of combinations. So the, the theory is really designed to try to distill that down to something that we can compute. Um, and I think the, the most important part of this is that the theory is what's called a zero Kelvin theory. So basically everything is computed as if the system is at zero Kelvin. And that is really important in understanding, I think the limitations for when we talk about high temperature superconductivity, because fundamentally this is no man's land um both from a theoretical space and from an experimental space from a theoretical space we like 
the tools that we have do not naturally exist in this space. Um, there's lots of things like how the phonons are going to happen, how the 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 symmetry, the Yonteller distortions that she talks about, these sort of local distortions in the atoms, how they're displaced or how they're actually dispersed within the material, whether that's even or not. When you put this stuff together, you're never going to get like perfectly you know, symmetric or perfect material all throughout. So is that going to cause a problem? Um, room temperature is relatively high temperature compared to 92 Kelvin, which is YBCO's critical temperature. So a lot of things have changed in that regime. So a lot of chemistry, physics, and material science is almost unexplored when we talk about high temperature superconductivity because all the tools that we have to get into that space were never designed in that space. And as a result, we don't have any way of telling whether our tools are actually going to work. And I think that's the line that Shanae walks, which is, you know, given the assumption that my tools still work, how would I look for this? And are those signatures still there? And they tend to still look like I would expect them to be. But again, I don't know the tools actually work in this space. And I think that's the big challenge here, that if it is, in fact, a high temperature superconductor is going to blow the world open. It's not because it's fundamentally superconducting, but it's because the physics are so different from what we're used to that it's going to change the way we think about materials in the space. I um, I don't know if other folks get chills uh, at the exact same time where I get chills while you were talking, uh, but I will definitely let Andrew and Ben ask you questions, Samia, uh, because this is incredible. Uh, and uh, I think we'll have more folks join us um, that talks about different other procedures, but we've been all following the different replication attempts, some of them live on Twitter. And some of the uh, folks are talking about the process that was written in the original papers or wasn't exactly, um, how should I say, a lot of it could have been done better, but definitely the approaches. And when I hear you speak about, hey, some of the tools that we have currently may not apply here or, um, you know, we need to take into account that the tools still do apply. That's that's just incredible to me. Um, yeah, Andrew, go ahead. <laughs> Your reaction, feel free. Sure. Yeah, I think that's awesome. It's a really good commentary there on the you know, nature of the tools being used, the kind of really idealistic assumptions that go into this. And um, I would, um, someone in the audience brought my attention actually, but I'll pass it along. Um, so uh, this this uh, flat band structure or this characteristic signature of the superconducting property that's put forward in the simulation result is something that's previously been discussed before in graphene. Um, apparently I'm looking at this article from 2018 you know, it's the article's name's un unconventional superconductivity in magic angle graphene superlattices, um, and it talks about how um, basically there's a similar effect here where a small twist angle or a small you know distortion in this crystal structure of graphene produces a uh, superconducting like property, um, and this is you know similar to uh, twisted bilayer graphene, similar to that of copper oxides or cuprates which are the, you know, the current kind of like the standard superconducting materials. Um, so this isn't like, you know, this, there's, I guess there's other touch points to the academic literature on this, but I think like the previous speaker just emphasized, you know, this is very much like at the realm of like contentions between theory and practice where, um, you know, we're trying to prove theories with new experiments. And so definitely there's, there's going to be other opinions on this too and other interpretations quite likely. Um, I wanted to say hi to Skylar. And folks, I will say some folks are DMing me, some folks who want to come up and ask questions that I 
honestly am too dumb to understand. And I've said this before in the previous phase, and uh, Hook didn't mind. I, uh, a lot of the chemistry, physics, and stuff goes above my head, and this is why Andrew and, and other folks here. Uh, I will bring up folks who uh, want to ask intelligent questions, uh, and uh, feel free to DM Andrew them as well. But if we get trolls, we will just kick him out. Um, and I wanna, I wanna. Before we get to Scalver, one second, I wanna let Alex a chance to to ask Shamia a question while we got them. So Scalver, just a little bit. Um, thank you. I, I mean, Sham, thanks so much for that explanation. I think there's a lot of questions we'd have and your expertise on. Uh, first, if, if uh, you could talk a little bit more about um, these uh, DFT calculations and other, you know moderate temperature superconductors like YVCOs. Do we see similar trace signatures? Does this match up with what we typically expect? Um, if you have expertise on the subject, I think we'd love to know. Yeah, so I think that's a, a really good question. Um, I think there's, so the short answer is yes and no. Um, basically what these calculations do is they try to do an approximation to a perfect solution. And the reality is, is that until we get real quantum computers and they're at like massive scales, we're probably never going to get perfect simulations of materials like this. Um, and so DFT effectively is one of the cheapest accurate methods of actually trying to compute materials like this and what their properties are. And there's a huge number of challenges associated with that. Um, one challenge is Fundamentally, in Shanae's paper, she took one lead atom out and put a copper atom in. And the way these simulations work is that you have as few atoms defined as possible, and you basically mirror them for infinity. So whatever arrangement that she put in is perfectly mirrored for infinity for all 10 to 21 atoms or you know, to whatever number of atoms you want to actually pretend you made a sample of. And that's really not realistic because that's such a large number the nature is gonna have a lot of entropy. It's basically gonna put randomness in terms of where it wants that copper, where it wants those Yontel distortions or not. And I think, you know, when we think about that, that's actually a standard problem that we have when we're running these DFT calculations for materials, whether it's superconductors or batteries or next generation semiconductors or whatever it is, it's standard across the field. Um, there are ways to deal with that when we talk about things like the effect of temperature they require A, more time, and B, a sort of an understanding of the mechanism itself before we can go after it. Because the combinatorics, again, they're basically more, you know, you go to a small number of, like, uh, complexity in terms of number of atoms, and the combinatorics already blows beyond the size of the universe. It's a, it's a very rapidly, like, exponential growth problem. So it's something you have to be very careful about how you actually tackle so that's, that's one, so basically we can get some of the aspects of YBCO, but we can't actually directly predict the superconductivity of YBCO with DFT. There are higher order methods that can do that, but they are extremely expensive. Um, and the reality is, again, when we talk about temperature, they're all zero Kelvin methods. And as soon as you have some of the complexities of temperature where atoms move, all of that becomes extremely expensive because you have to average over all the ways in which those atoms can move. And the reality is, I don't think we'll ever get to a definitive theoretical simulation of how this material, if it is in fact superconducting, works until we experimentally understand it, we can produce it and experimentally understand it at a level that will probably tell us what the fundamental mechanism is. 
then one last question for you is, uh, Snade tantalizingly hints here at this proportionality between the critical temperature and the um, you know, effective interaction uh, for attraction as well as the, the density of states calculation around the Fermi energy. But I don't think explicitly lays it out in the paper. If you happen to know, if you were to do that rough proportionality, what the implication for the critical temperature would be based on the calculations? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that is, you know, I think so my, again, I think my experience from other spaces is that it's very hard to talk about these materials or those kind of properties for temperature and predict them from the electronic structure. Typically, superconductors are probably the one space where that may not be valid because it is such an electronic thing. But again, my intuition sort of tells me that the chemical and the structural variation that's going to happen at room temperature that's not going to be insignificant and it's going to be on the same order as sort of the error you're going to get by that proportionality. Um, if not, you potentially even swamp it out. There are materials where the electronic structure itself changes rather drastically as a function of temperature. And we're talking about say five, 10 degrees. I mean, take a YBCO around the critical point and the electronic structure changes dramatically around the critical point. So when we talk about a zero Kelvin temperature no, simulation, and then talk about room temperature, which is on the order of 300 Kelvin, I really hesitate to estimate like what that is. And I think that's also the reason why Sinead doesn't put an actual number or anything there, because it's more of like, hey, this feels right, but I don't know. I don't have any good way of saying what the number is. Probably not even the magnitude. Got it. Thank you so much for walking us through that. Last quick question. Any hints of uh, replication efforts there at Livermore? Well, so I'm no longer at Berkeley, so I can't really talk about whether they're doing it. I think a number of institutes are, do, are trying to make this. Um, so, you know, it's not an easy process. I've tried to make solid state materials before. If there's a million and a half ways that you can screw it up. Um, so I say good luck to everyone trying to remake this with like 80% of the recipe defined in the paper. Is that across all the three papers that we saw? The 80% of the recipe? <laughs> um, yeah. Because the original authors said they're willing to work with folks and kind of provide the rest of it. And I think we saw today an update to the third paper, the six author paper. Um, and we've seen replication attempts from India, I believe, that they've also communicated with Lee uh, over email and kind of talked about the process. So, um, yeah, talk, talk to us about <laughs> potential stuff that you as, know. Yeah, as someone who's tried with. to recreate, you know, recipes from before, and I'm sure there's people on here who are organic chemists who've done organic chemistry, which is much well is much better structured in terms of like how these recipes are defined and how the processes are. There is always secret sauce, and it may not be intentional. It just might be like, oh, I stirred in this one counterclockwise direction, which caused slightly more turbulence, or I mixed it in this one. Wait, 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 Sean, I'm sorry to interrupt. You said something, yeah. and I'm I'm the Jesse Pinkman on the stage here. I'm the dumb yeah. guy who doesn't understand science. Y'all are Heisenberg. <laughs> you said stir in the other direction, and I flash back to, like, the first fucking Harry Potter movie with Professor it's, Snape. It's, yeah, and it's on that level. Are you, are you serious? Yes, it, it's honestly on that? that level. There are very few production recipes that we have today where there is not some secret method involved in there where somebody does something that they don't understand that that is critical. You'll see it in production, even at the level of like Dow and 3M where some operator leaves 
and their yields have suddenly dropped or their material quality has changed. And this is the reality for us making material today, whether it's YBCOs, single crystal uh, silicon ingots for semiconductors or polypropylene at a Dow chemical plant. I will, I will uh, kind of add to this from uh, my dumb side, knowing about this for all of three days, that um, in the last space, Sangyam, who's currently in Korea and, and joined us last time, uh, he read all the three papers and he saw a translation that wasn't like made it to the other papers where the quartz tube they used either cracked or broke and the translation wasn't like really clear. Uh, and apparently in 2018, when this happened, suddenly they've tested and suddenly they, they got something. And then I saw many folks talk about oxid Organization or 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 some sort that they've kind of found, um, and unclear whether or not they were able to replicate since then. This was back in 2018 or 20, or so. Uh, however, this sounds like what you're discussing. Uh, and uh, Shana, I, I want to say hi to Andrew McCaleb, and we've talked about replication attempt. And folks, if you don't follow Andrew yet, uh, Andrew is currently live stream on Twitch. Andrew, is, is the Twitch running? Can you say hi and tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. The, the furnaces are burning right now. Uh, I. I'm just now catching up on everything that's happening, but glancing at the edited paper, it seems like there's still some discrepancies on some of the procedures, such as the um, the, the lead synthesis step still references a vacuum when so much of the other paper references open air crucibles. So it seems like there might've been some edits, but there's uh, still some, uh, there's not clarity around things like ramp rates for the thermal steps, which are, absolutely critical um that echoing what the previous speaker said uh we deal with this in small molecule uh pharmaceutics crystallization where the the smallest change uh, to the process parameters can influence the way the polymorphs form uh it is incredible that your procedure captures all of the uh, required information and that something is not happening by accident most of the times you get lucky and the process is stable enough. Um, other times you have a knife edge process where you can fall on either side of equilibrium and uh, not really realize that that is happening. So I find it very hard to believe that we will be successful with this recipe um, for quite some time. It's going to be like a long slog to get there. Um, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, another question here is, so, I mean... Uh, Sinead hints in the last paragraph of the discussion that the copper uh, doping really only works if it's substituted at one of the two lead sites, which uh, could definitely explain a lot on the challenges for replication here, and that you might have to just get lucky. Or I'm not sure, could any uh, material scientist speak to how you might control you know, which of the sites this copper doping is going to affect, uh, Shyam or anyone else here? So it sounds, it sounds pretty tough. You might have to just break your quartz tube when you exit it from the reaction vessel, I guess. So, so uh, another follow-up uh, for Sham is uh, if, if if that's another Nobel Prize or whether or not this is an, another Nobel Prize. Do you think that currently, based on what you're seeing, Sham, based on original papers, based on this uh, uh, simulation uh, with a field that you're very close in uh, and sounds very involved in, do, do you think... This is a Nobel Prize. LK, as it currently stands, is a Nobel Prize kind of paper release, recipe, um, material? I mean, 
I, I will, uh, again, I'll caveat that at the end of the day, superconductivity is not my specialty. So I can't really comment on whether or not it's been, you know, appropriately found. I think the community, really the scientific community has to demonstrate that we are replication. Um, but I think at the end of the day, if it is demonstrated that this is room temperature, you know, a really high TC superconductivity, then we have entered a new realm of sort of physics. Um, and at least at the material science and uh, condensed matter physics level, there is a whole new world that's been opened up in terms of what we can explore. And that is typically one of the critical factors for a Nobel Prize. It's not just this is super cool and we can you know, do all kinds of you know, fun things with it, but has it fundamentally changed the state of the science itself and how we think about it? Uh, ben, I think uh, you had a question. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, I got a question about. Uh, so, okay, um, the the section about the isolated flat bands at the Fermi level. Um, could you comment, like, okay, if you if you saw a DFT generated, um, you know, band diagram like that, and you saw those features, would you? Would you, how confident would you be that that material was, was a superconductor, knowing nothing else about it? Is that something you'd only find in a superconductor or something that could be found in a superconductor? It could be found in other things? Like, maybe walk us through that a bit. Andrew talked about uh, this sort of same sort of band phenomenon showing up in graphene. And the reality is that it on its own does not indicate superconductivity. It is just something that has been proposed as a mechanism for superconductivity. And Shanae's whole discussion is that this is relatively flat in comparison with what we'd expect in other cuprate systems, um, which suggests that it could be more stable when we go to higher temperatures. So it's really talking, and it's not saying that this is the mechanism, but it's saying that if it is the mechanism, this is, should be more robust to temperature than other materials and could be the reason why then it would be a high TC thing. One thing I'd love to see is... Um if she did the same simulation with the un um, with the unsubstituted structure without the copper and, and to compare the band diagram or the, so the band structure um, between those between the control I guess and then the copper substituted structure do you think she might have something like that um, I'm gonna imagine that she did um, so the, the original structure comes from the materials project and I recommend everybody here who's interested go and register an account on there it's 100% free. It's a large database of computed materials properties. So it's basically other materials that have we found pretty much you know throughout human history that we have crystal structures for, and a variety of computed properties using this density functional theory methodology, all totaled up ends up being you know hundreds of millions of CPU hours, you know effectively millions of dollars of uh, calculations that have all been compiled and put in a very presentable, nice, easy to use interface. Um, and the original crystal structure is on the materials project, if I remember correctly. She tw uh, tweeted at one point the LK99 crystal structure, the materials project link. Um, so the base band structure is there. What she did in, on top of that is basically these spin polarized calculations, which are about an order to two orders of magnitude more expensive than the original calculations. So that there is that aspect. And so I would say that it, I think she might have it. Uh, I would expect that she would probably have it, but and then she probably saw that deviation in the in the, uh, in the flat bands themselves. But again, like the presence of those bands, even if the bands weren't there before and they are there now, that itself does not indicate that it's a superconductor, partially because.
Sorry, is anybody else having trouble hearing? Oh, sorry, no, Marsh, I think that's probably just you. I think folks yeah. are hearing, Sean. I'm, I'm having a bit of trouble hearing. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah? Can you hear me now? I'm also having a bit of trouble hearing. Okay, uh, Sean, can you try to move your mic? Yep. Uh, can people hear me now? I can hear you. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so, you know, the pre the presence of the band does not indicate uh, it's a superconducting material. It's the fact that the bands are relatively flat. So if we assume that flat band is the mechanism for superconducting, then we could understand that flatness as a potential way in which this could be a high TC superconductor versus, say, you know, nine, you know, below 92 Kelvin, basically close to zero Kelvin superconductor. And Sean, I think, what is correct me. I'll answer that quickly, then follow up with my question, just Sean. You might yeah. know this better than I. But so a band here, it's basically where electrons are allowed to be in terms of energy, and so it's sort of like, you know, um, yeah, you know, Sean, you can correct that if you want. Um, the band, think of it as a conduction pathway, right? It's if a band is there, it means electrons can can exist there. Um, so one thing in the paper that stood out to me, and maybe you can correct me on, or or qualify this, but was saying that the bandwidth of that band, meaning like how wide that band is, is a lot smaller um, than the separation between it and the other nearby energy levels. And that, that might also suggest kind of resilience of the uh, superconducting property to, to temperature and so forth. Is that in line with your understanding? Yeah, so uh, effectively there's, there's two things there. One is that... I, I don't think you want to think it as a conduction pathway. That's not the right way because a conduction pathway, I think of like in space. The way you want to think about this is it's basically a space. It's a, if you think about like a set of stairs and then you have sort of like certain landing areas on those stairs, the, they're the landing areas. It doesn't mean that the electrons can't move between them. It doesn't mean the electrons can't somehow temporarily exist between them. It just means that when they are, you know, going to go and act and they're sort of existing long enough in a certain specific state that, you know, this is sort of quantum physics level of like, it can't be, you know, there's sort of a, a, a entanglement between sort of how well we understand or how localized that electron is versus how long that is uh, localized in that state. Basically, like, in terms of thinking about how the system works, it's going to spend so much time at, in that one position that that's where we want to think about how it you know, imparts the the functionality or the properties of the material. And so when we have a band there, what we're basically saying is this is where the electrons are sitting most of the time. And so the way in which they control, if this is a superconductor, if it's a semiconductor, if it's a conductor, if it's an insulator, if it's, uh, you know, allowing this material to be a photovoltaic material or a battery material, whatever it is, is it's mostly going to spend it in that time. And so that is where we interrogate how does this electron contribute to the properties of this material? When we talk about the bandwidth, I think the reason why Sinead brings that up is, again, when we get to high temperatures, we really don't have good tools for directly computing the properties of material. So we're always making estimations. And one way to think about that is temperatures basically smear things out. You know, you can convert a temperature directly into an energy, 3 kBT or 3 halves kBT, uh, where kB is the Boltzmann's constant you can basically convert that into an energy and that's about the smearing amount for a lot of different things, including potential electronic structure. So the sort of these bands, and if they're the bandwidth is small, then that smearing is unlikely to make it sort of 
across another band and sort of turn it off. So whatever unique things you got from that band, if they were able to get to high temperature and all these other assumptions, like the chemistry is not changing, the structure is not changing, the electronic structure is not changing, the mechanism for what could be causing superconductivity is not changing. If all of those assumptions are still true, then we could understand that one way in which everything is resilient in terms of superconductivity at high TC is because that bandwidth is small enough that it doesn't get smeared to the point where it gets turned off. Um, Incredible um, explanation. That was awesome. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, way, way above my head, but uh, Andrew and other scientists probably caught more of it than I would. Uh, Andrew, uh, a lot of new folks. I would love if you could um, explain who Sean was talking about, which paper, and uh, basically why at least some of us on stage here percentage has updated towards the yes and why the manifold markets thing doesn't load for me. And it's now at 40%. Um, go ahead. Wow. I, uh, <laughs> that's a big move. I really should have done something there. I didn't actually do anything. Um, yeah, so happy to give the update or the recap so far. And it might fall short of, of Sean's uh, quality of explanation just now. So uh, a publication came out now about three hours ago. Um, a material scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab um, named Sinead. Uh, I can't hear her last name. Um, Sinead Griffin. And uh, what she did was a simulation of this result published a few days ago by a team in Korea. And that team in Korea claimed to have found the first room temperature ambient pressure superconductor, which is a huge deal for humanity for lots of reasons. You know, it could revolutionize energy production and storage and a thousand places in our day-to-day -day lives. It would be like as big as a transistor, in my opinion, sort of long-term impact. I am... Um, so I personally want uh, one deep science explanation and then one hype about what else we can change. But yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So just a quick recap what happened here. So, so the Korean scientists found this material that has these amazing properties, right? And some people, you know, the, their methods weren't entirely clear. Some of the plots could have been better. Definitely some, you know, it was not a perfect paper, um, but it, it was interesting enough to kind of generate some discussion. So what Sinead did was she simulated that material. Um, and as, as Sean mentioned, you know, the simulation, it's copying the mechanism that the Koreans proposed, which is that you have this lead sulfite uh, or sulfate uh, material, and it has a crystal lattice. You can think of that like a little cube structure. I mean, it wasn't a cube in the paper, but just for now, think of a cube. It's familiar. Um, and what happened was that copper atoms started to kind of percolate or bind or to replace some of the lead atoms in certain places. And what that did was it produced a twist or rotation in that crystal lattice. And this is a very simplified explanation. It's not at all like the deep physics of it, but it's sort of the gist, right? It's that there's a very subtle structural change in this crystal lattice via copper atoms going into interesting places. And this produces this superconducting phenomena. So Sinead took a simulation of that, and um, as the other speaker mentioned, you know, it's an idealized case. It's a very kind of, you know, reduced to an ideal unit cell in the material. So it's not the billions and billions of atoms that are normally in just this cubic millimeter. Um, but, a pro like, you know, using those methods to simulate the material, running on a supercomputer or, or, you know, some serious compute facility at the lab and using professional grade simulation software and so forth, you know, um, found found results that would suggest this material could have 
superconducting properties according to some of our theories of the superconducting properties. So I'm, I'm putting lots of qualifiers on there because it's not like a done deal, right? But it, it is really interesting because this this is a professional material science scientist who had you know people in her lab in her department or group review it and look at it. It was a serious simulation, and uh, there were some surprising results, right? There were some things that were really non obvious or you know, her language in the paper was suggesting, oh, remarkably, there was energy bands right where you'd hope to see them. And, this, and, and the shape of those bands and the shape of these results even suggests why this material might be superconducting at high temperature too. So, so that was like, for me, really exciting. And I, you know, I think it's personally my estimation of the likelihood of this really went from, you know, way below half, like 10%, 5%, something. So a lot, a lot more, right? <laughs> I won't say the number because I don't want to, there's markets now involved. But uh, enough to celebrate a, a little bit, I think. A lot more specifically because we know several things about the process, um, and and some things that like uh, point the finger towards there's some smoke and there could, could be fire there. And this is a simulation, so we're not taking this as kind of a uh, experimental like replication. Somebody doesn't show us the uh, quote unquote rock flow due to Mason effect that I hope you guys can explain as well. Some folks have heard this. Some folks have got excited. Um, but so this isn't that. This is simulation. Computers, right? They don't have the material currently, or uh, at least Sinead, sorry, it doesn't have the material. This is the simulation. However, the excitement that Andrew points to joins the fact that we are currently tracking, and by we, I mean the global community, science and non-science alike. We're currently tracking multiple replication attempts. We have folks in in here to try replication. We have folks on Twitter try replication. We heard stuff about. Um, other other labs, and I think Sham also you mentioned something about uh, other labs as well. We know about scientists that actually uh, correspond with the Korean scientists um, that I remember. Hyunta Kim at least uh, reacted, and, and Lee reacted. One of the original folks from LK. So this simulation and this update joins other replication attempts. And the point to highlight here for folks who are not as sciencey as me is that um, the papers. Uh, showed kind of how to create this material and folks here on stage previously said well it's uh, <laughs> Sean famously said and Sean I'm going to hold this quote to you sometimes when you swirl the thing in the other direction sometimes you get different properties uh, so it's not like as easy as one to three recipe however um, everybody agrees that this is a fairly fast replication with fairly common um, uh, materials right red phosphorus is being restricted but other like lead appetite and other materials um, so we should see results soon uh, this is this is the result that like simulationally directionally saying yes. Uh, however, also replication attempts are saying uh, are happening as we speak. And um, Andrew had a great thing about replication non successes. Um, we shouldn't over index on them. Can you can you recap that from the last space? I think that was an interesting and very important point. Yeah, totally. So um, you know. Build, making these materials, it's very difficult, right? This is a very much an artisanal process. Uh, this is not like, you know, putting a frozen pizza in the oven, okay? This is like, um, you know, you're, you're, you're making some magical potions, basically. So there's a lot of art and craft that goes into this. There's a lot of trade secret or things that would be trade secret. It's, it's basically impossible to describe this fully in a paper, and, and they didn't describe it fully in the first place. And so I think it's, aw and, um, I think it's awesome. There's a lot of, like, citizen scientists reproducing these results, and I, I'd be really excited to see what comes out of there. Um, I would also say, though, if they didn't hit those performance metrics, I personally wouldn't rule it out. I think it's really to be determined by 
collaboration with the original authors, which I understand are, are going on right now. Like other scientists have flown to Korea to work with them to kind of go through it. So that's the, that's the real proof, I think. It's that um, the original people can, can do it again. And uh, we, we get to see that happen. That would be, I mean, well, then it's, then it's I think, a done deal. Um, yeah, but very difficult to reproduce these things consistently, likely given what's been described in the original paper as also the simulation, where the copper, it's not falling into the most likely location. And as Sean mentioned, like, you know, you can't control that, right? So you just kind of get a percentage yield, likely, depending on, 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 on the, the probability it falls in there. So likely you won't get very pure samples that float magically like superconductors do in videos and they're all you know floating there with no no strings or whatever um that being said i think if you do get a, a run of production you know a batches of this stuff and you test it consistently and and the measurements are coming back in a confirming way then i think you can really celebrate uh you know i'm surprised that this simulation result came out that was supportive so soon but that was very impressive this is an incredibly fast turnaround time and it's a it's well written paper too. It's well considered result, so it's definitely not you know it's not a hasty. Uh, it yeah, it's from a well respected lab from a professional scientist. I think that's very bullish. Um, I would say replication results to be announced you know in the next few days from different labs. I would also be curious, um, but I'm you know I, I you know it's really the original authors right. If the original authors can make it happen again with collaborative scientists, then then we're golden. I think I would I would reserve my actual like conclusions until that point. And I hope we're going to do like a live faces when it happens. Uh, Alex, go yeah, ahead. I want to emphasize Andrew's point there that uh, there are two, according to Sinead's research, one of the really interesting findings is there are two lead sites that the copper doping can substitute for the leaded lattice. It is the less likely one that results in these traces of superconductivity. So the point is, it will be extremely hard to create this material because you're basically hoping that the slightly less probable replacement happens during your synthesis. And that could theoretically explain a lot of the challenges that the original authors, as well as other labs have had in replication so far. And also, Alex, I don't know if we're gonna see replication in the next few days if these results are correct given the challenges in this energetically unfavorable substitution that Sinead had found uh, through theory here. So I think oh, it could be actually really hard to make this material. And Shyam said earlier, if you can selectively choose the less likely lead substitution site, you win a Nobel Prize. So uh, I think synthesis here is going to be really challenging and could explain why it's taken so long to find something like this. Interesting. So you're seeing uh, a sign towards the, the positive, but also seeing like uh, replication, um, how should I say, uh, problematic uh, updates as well? Here? Yeah, it, it seems like it could be very hard to synthesize this material from, from the paper here. So I could, I could add something. So like, there's a lot of cases where materials will form in, I guess you can say like less energetically favorable structures and that's like kind of all of material sciences um you know like that so like the typical example you, you make a phase diagram um of a material you want to heat it up and have it cool down in such a way that it like locks in a less energetically favorable structure so that's part of the challenge in synthetic organic chem inorganic chemistry is getting materials to be in crystal structures that aren't like the simplest and most energetically favorable 
uh, structure. Um, so it, I, I don't think that just because it's in the less favorable site that like has a, a tremendous bearing on the ability of it to be synthesized, period. But yeah, I mean, it might make it more challenging. I wanted to get uh, Skylar, uh, before you drop out, uh, Skylar dropped out. Um, I wanted to get Skylar's question. Uh, however, Andrew, if you have more questions for Sham, and uh, please uh, reintroduce Sham, I think, for some new folks. Uh, the paper author is, um, I want to remember the name, I'm sorry. It's... Let me find this. Just a quick shout out to the audience. If anyone's here like a condensed matter physicist or, or works in this field, send me a message. Get up here. You know, this is an open mic um, kind of thing. So. I've uh, I try to give like an explanation that's approachable to people that maybe don't have a physics, physics background, but it's been quite a number of years since I worked in a condensed matter lab, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty much I'm pretty rusty on it. So <laughs> just send me a DM on, on. Yeah. Um, oh, I think you you, you muted. I want to say hi to Atopai as well. Atopai participated with us in the in the previous paper. Uh, sorry, in the previous space we don't write papers uh, in Twitter. Um, and. Uh, uh, I think you were the highest typing one in the previous space, if I don't, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk about uh, what you're seeing right now in your excitement? Uh, Did it change? Did it go up? Go down? Or are you at 100% already? Uh, no, no. I mean, I, 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 I was, uh, I was already kind of like, uh, you know, in the last space, I was already at like 80% or so, right? Um, and 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 my bets were all on the on the human pieces, right? Uh, I, I I was betting on. I was betting on the guys like not throwing away his career and blah 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 blah, right? And then after that, I uh, yesterday uh, basically I I called it right. I called it yesterday. I said, um, you know, uh, I, I saw the Argon connection. I saw Kasselbas. Um, I saw Humta, Kasselbas, and uh, Mazer, uh, who had been working for basically twelve, thirteen years together. And they, they'd, um, you know, done characterization of um, metallic uh, ceramics, uh, you know, vanadium, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, at the, at the, at the conduct, conductance layer and, and at this like metal, metal insulator transitions and like, and I was like, well, if, if I were Hyuntak and I got like the, the way these things work is that they're secrets, right? Hey, I just, just a, a small intervention. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hyuntak uh, Kim, correct? Yeah. He's the author of the currently uh, most viable English paper that just got updated today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, 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 so to give you the background, this is LK99, yeah. Lee and Kim, right? So Lee and Kim basically come up with this thing. And, you know, I'm not going to talk about all the drama, but, you know, Hyuntak, who is a, a college professor at William & Mary, eventually gets brought over the wall. And, and when I say over the wall, what really happens is that all these things are little, like like little mini cults, right? Like you have to have this idea and you have to guard it against skepticism, because it's a crazy idea, right? Like when if you introduce it into the world too quickly and you don't have proof, people shoot it down, right? That that's the whole this is the whole concept of peer review is for people to shoot it down, right? So you guard this idea, and these two guys never publish, right? Like they don't publish for like you know twenty years, they don't, they don't publish, right? And so then at, at the point that they bring Hyuntak over, he's basically, you know, Kwan has come in before, but Kwan is, you know, financially interested. When, when, when Hyuntak comes in, that's the first point that you actually see um, an, external, uh, an external voice, uh, a new member who's getting introduced uh, to this little mini cult that they have, right? And, and, and what happens at that point is one of two things can happen, right? Like he, he can say like, look, I don't believe you, right? He walks out, right? But he doesn't do that. He believes them, right? So if he believes them, there's only two things, two ways that this can go. 
one, it's real. Or two, he got hypnotized, right? It, you know, he, he, he joined the cult and he got hypnotized, right? So... I want to bring us down just a little bit yeah. uh, to, the, to the folks. Uh, you mentioned several things. Uh, just about Hyun Tak Kim, uh, he's a respected scientist. Yeah. And with a lot of citations, yeah. right? Like an age score with uh, about 40, I believe, which means that at least 40 of his publications has each uh, like 40 citations or something. Very well-respected person. And if he comes in to kind of, you know, clean house or, you know, just verify or help, yeah. uh, he would not stake his like huge reputation yeah. on releasing something yeah. uh, that's not verifiable to his eyes yeah. or maybe he, he's seen yeah. as well. Yeah. And also you have to remember that everyone in the space, everyone in this like, you know, academic space has basically seen so many scams that the moment you say room temperature superconductor, they are like, oh, it's a perpetual motion machine. Like, I, I don't want to talk to you, right? Um, so, so basically, the moment you hear it, it's a scam. And uh, it comes from, like, you know, two Korean guys with no publications, uh, you know, sitting in Seoul. They're like, this, this is a scam, right? So even regardless, regardless of all of these things, which are basically, like, non-credible, Hyun Tak basically places his entire career on the line. Right. So at that point, I'm like, OK, uh, but for me, the problem is that he is Korean. Right. So I, I don't know whether there is some mimetic influence going on. So I'm like, I'm still a little bit uncertain. Right. I'm still a little bit uncertain at this point. Kwan, I kind of discard because he's like he, he, he's been with the team for three years. He's been hypnotized. Right. So then you see, you know, Hyun Tuck there. Hyun Tuck goes back to the College of William and Mary. And, you know, that's when we kind of meet these guys when the, when, the, when the papers dropped, like, last week, right? And so I'm still, I'm still like, not certain. I'm still like, eh, you know, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. I want to yeah. push back yeah. here a little bit. Uh, the, the person Kwan you mentioned, uh, I, I just want to tell the audience, like, who, who we're speaking about. Uh, Kwan Yang-Gwen, I think, is the, is the yeah. name. Uh, he's the author of the first paper that's published on the archive yeah. in English. Yeah. Right. So before before all this, we have a, a Korean paper that was later found. The, the folks did submit for a peer review, yeah. uh, and that also reads like a log almost of what they're doing. And Kwan, uh, I, I don't want to like talk about history. I think Adapai, like I haven't seen like a LinkedIn. Yeah. However, a lot of this is sleuth. However, Kwan is the guy like actually actually uploading this to archive and creating this insanity the world witnessing, right? Like, yeah. There's a first paper, potentially reaction, or a second paper, like potentially, yeah. uh, uh, sorry, Hyun Tak Kim potentially kind of two hours later yeah. uploads the second paper. Uh, and this could potentially explain also why it feels like it was rushed. Yeah. We had Sung, Sung Hyun from uh, Korea last night. He can't join today, unfortunately. He needs to work. Yeah. However, he said... Um, uh, one second, dude. You're saying, yeah, I lose my focus. Sorry. Uh, so uh, he he said to us that um, the first paper that both Lee and Kim published in Korean, the second kind of paper that the Squan dude released, uh, they have not a lot of things in common. And the third rush paper that we see from this like respectable scientist, Yun Takim, the third paper, uh, <laughs> feels reaction, it doesn't include Kwan. However, the thing that I want to say is that I don't want to talk ill about the authors because we really don't know what was going on there. However, Kwan uh, may go down in history as the guy who pushed this forward, as the guy who released this in archive. Potentially, they could have worked on this, found out kind of a way for this to work, and then not release this to anyone and then, you know, hold up in like a secret lab in Korea somewhere, right? And Kwan and is just like, hey, let's outsource this. Let's, let's open source this. Let's put this up on archive uh, and uh, potentially kicked off this whole thing. 
he may go down in history. I don't know about Nobel Prizes and the three authors in the paper, etc. But uh, Kwan uh, is definitely maybe the money guy, maybe the guy who came in. Um, but he's definitely the guy who first told the world about this and started all of all of this insanity. Uh, Alex, I think I think you wanted to comment as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll take responsibility here for drumming up a bunch of hype initially about this paper. I was very excited about it when it first hit the archive, as some of my friends in physics were. Um, I think the first paper, the first paper, paper, yeah. paper, right? The three authors, yeah. And I, I, I acknowledge a lot of people maybe having deja vu of uh, <laughs> this most recent preprint as well. There are substantial differences in um, you know things like the credibility of the lab it comes from. But fundamentally, these are both potentially interesting research discoveries that need further replication efforts as well as uh, investigation by other labs. Uh, that being said, I think it's okay to get excited about things as they come out. Um, science is a prog process of fits and starts. You know, Sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. But uh, in this case, I think we're seeing some really interesting contributions and something that really captured the attention of the world. And it's kind of fun for us to, to cheer on a lot of the researchers who are doing this work um, uh, from the sidelines here. I completely uh, thank you for the hype cycle that you started. A lot of the replication attempts started while watching this hype cycle. And the news that we get may come out faster because many more people lay died on, on this. And we got joined by like 30,000 people in the last space of Andrew. Uh, and many people just came in to like see what's going on. And uh, some of them potentially started like replicating and hearing about this. And there's like a whole... The first paper was released and essentially no peer review, right? It was like uploaded to this archive. Archive, archive, I don't know how to pronounce this, is the place where you can just like upload papers. Uh, the second paper looks like a reactionary fast attempt to do something to release, to, to say, hey, we're the actual team. Uh, I, w I want to like add maybe this one point. Quan apparently the guy from the first paper uh, who uploaded is no longer affiliated with the center, with the Q Center, so Quantum uh, Center for uh, for research. Uh, that both Lee and Kim, the guys behind LK, uh, started to find this material. So uh, when he uploaded, he wasn't a participant, but he uploads anyway. And we we started hop cycle. Many people hop on this. Second paper comes out, more details, uh, people try to replicate. Now we have a simulation uh, from a respectable lab, uh, uh, a, a simulation kind of result that says that, hey, this is possible, while replication are cooking. And Andrew, I think you have another update. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Breaking news. Um, so there's another paper that was... Wait, I love breaking news. Can I say, hey, folks, breaking news in space. Live Alpha coming at you in this like insanity of a three-day. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, totally. So uh, this is really interesting. Uh, this is actually a comment from someone from the audience who messaged me. So, so keep questions and comments coming. Um, this is a simulation on uh, from a, a Chinese Academy of Sciences um, Institute of Metal Research, Shenyang National Laboratory of Metal Science. I, I'm not familiar with the group or the uh, research group, but it's a simulation of the same material, right? LK99, and um, yeah, they find some they find some things that are right in line with um, the simulation that was dropped a few hours ago, really. Namely, in the uh, deformation of the crystal lattice because of the copper doping, right? The presence of flat bands near the Fermi level that exist with that doping. And, and that these suggest, you know, these strong electronic correlations that are, you know, thought to be very much contributing to superconductivity. Um, 
And yeah, so it's, it's just interesting. So it's just sort of another piece of triangulation here. I guess this one, I, I didn't cross my radar previously. Um, there was another question from the audience uh, about, you know, how useful this material could be and whether, you know, is it going to be impactful, right? Because there is some concerns over, can it carry a lot of current, right? That's a big question. Is it useful for that? And then also, can it even exist in a strong magnetic field? And... Um, I can comment a on lot that of current is, a, a, uh, a lot of current is relevant to its magnetic properties. The more current, then the stronger the magnet is. Yeah, yeah. So you want to be able to carry current to use it in electronics, to use it for power transmission and power generation and so forth. Um, you also want to have it be able to exist in a strong magnetic field. That's, that's part of carrying a high current, right? Um, but that enables lots of other applications well, that's actually, sorry, like electrical generation, it has to withstand high fields. Um, but also in things like MRIs, in things like nuclear fusion, in things like maglev trains, right? It has to withstand these high magnetic fields. Um, and so just a quick story here from history is that the last time a discovery like this was announced, it was 1986, right? And it was the development of these yttrium barium oxide crystals. So those ended up winning the Nobel Prize. And it, it took a while to verify as well. But there was, you know, ultimately like dozens of labs all over the world that ended up independently verifying those results. Um, and since then, those have kicked off this kind of next generation of superconducting materials. And, you know, they also started off as very weak in terms of their ability to carry large amounts of current and so supply energy, also their ability to withstand magnetic fields. And when I, when I say withstand magnetic fields, it's very interesting. So superconductors, you can kind of think like whether you're superconducting is not, or not in terms of like a budget. And the budget you get to spend on a few things. You can spend it on high current, you can spend it on high field, or you can spend it on temperature. And it's, it's, it's hard to get all three at once. So typically, a, a superconductor will fall out of superconducting state if it carries too much electrical current at once, or if the field is too strong, or if the temperature goes too high. Those are the three real considerations or, or operating points when thinking about using this stuff in engineering applications. And that, that's my experience. I'm an engineer guy. I use this stuff in uh, applications and non-material scientists. But, um, but just for context, so the HTS tape we have today, high temperature superconducting tape, it's manufactured in the thousands of kilometers, right? Like this stuff is totally industrial grade good. Um, it's mass produced. It's the subject of dozens of years of engineering improvements that have consistently increased its performance envelope, its ability to carry high currents, to carry, you know, the original currents were tiny. Now it's, I think, uh, almost 100 times more. And the field as well has increased drastically. So now it's really useful for a lot of these industrial engineering applications, even though it still has to have liquid nitrogen cryogenics, right? So just, you know, if you hear people... It's still very useful right now. However, it's still very it useful. like super cool and like a lot of energy is going to get wasted on getting it to be that temperature, right? It's difficult. That's right. That's right. But I mean, um, they're building a maglev train uh, in Japan. Uh, I forget what city is going to connect, but it using, it's using uh, cryogenically cooled superconducting magnets as part of its levitation system. Um, so it's, it's still finding use. And every fusion company around today that is using magnetic confinement fusion, meaning guys that build tokamaks, like the big donut things or, or stellarators like I do, um, uh, and what's a tokamak? Can you can you explain this? Yeah, so tokamak is a fusion device. You know, fusion device produces electrical energy by burning hydrogen into helium, just like the stars do. That's how stars shine. 
stars get their energy from nuclear fusion. Uh, if we can produce nuclear fusion on Earth, it would be an abundant, clean, cheap, reliable energy source that would last us billions of years, literally. It the, would just the holy grail of whatever the fuck uh, uh, Kardashian yeah, scale yeah. we are on, right? Like, That's right. Yeah, it's like totally... abundant energy. We, um, it, it doesn't seem real. Like it's, it's science fiction what you're describing right now. Pretty much, yeah. So fusion energy definitely starts climbing the Kardashian scale uh, to, to a good extent. Um, and Tokamak is this uh, huge thing. They're working on this like uh, for a long, long time. It's currently taking a lot of energy to to get it to that state. Uh, and they've, with some successes, uh, were able to replicate. And it uses like the, the first superconducting materials that we ever created. Uh, we have folks like Helium Space. They're talking about the second, they have like sixth generation uh, of fusion reactors. And they're using the, the second, the higher temperature one. Is that correct? Uh, I'm actually, I kind of forget what um, what their magnet design is. Um, so, so, so not to put you on the spot, but they're using yeah. magnets for sure. They're moving plasma. They're like, they're getting fusion. And the whole problem so far with like the fusion energy, uh, at least part of the problem, I don't know if it's a whole problem, is that uh, it, it takes just more energy to produce the energy. Well, than... Here, let me, let me put this in context, okay? So yes, these, these high temperature superconducting tape, it's called, called HTS tape, otherwise it's the mouthful. But its ability to get better over time and hit these engineering performance benchmarks in terms of current and magnetic field, that's what's enabled Commonwealth Fusion to raise $2 billion in private venture capital to build their fusion reactor. For context, the total amount of money raised across all fusion companies in history is $4 billion. So right now, so that kind of engineering breakthrough, even though it's cooled with liquid nitrogen, even though it's not room temperature, that kind of breakthrough justifies something like $2 billion of investment into a technology that's, that's completely nascent, that's never worked before. So, Andrew, let me, let me pause you just real quick because I have to ask this. I really, for the folks in the audience, for the high people, I have to ask. Um, the whole justification that we're currently seeing, based on the two simulations, even at this point, without like seeing the rock float, and I would love to also talk about Meisner effect, if you can explain that in a second. Uh, does this already justify the investment? Like, is this enough? to start like spending a lot of money to, to, to start like getting towards uh, a, a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor at this point right now? Really interesting question. I think um, one thing to look about, one thing to think about here, it's, it's your starting point in this search space. You know, it's like the space of possible materials to investigate is so large. It's so giant. It's like this in, in insanely high dimensional maze or something. So if this is a promising place to start looking around, right, if, if it's hard to manufacture, that's the story with the previous generation of superconductors is that they, they found a new starting location to look around in, and that's how you got better over time, as well as engineering practice. Um, yeah, so I think it would probably justify, I mean, we'll see, labs will verify this, right? Like, it'll, we'll find out again within weeks if we get verification from, you know, experimental validity, which, which is ex like measuring it, right, on a benchtop test, not just simulations. Um, but yeah, I could I could very well expect a, a flux of new grant funding, new research spending into basic material science. I mean, that would be awesome. I think we need more of it. I think we don't spend enough on this kind of stuff. It's probably less than 1% of the total research budget we put on cell phone cameras every year. Um, and it goes a long way, right? This is how you advance as a species. This is how you advance as a civilization. Transistor was hey, invented at Bell Labs and it changed the world. So yeah. <laughs> I, I love zooming in with my third iPhone camera on my son as much as the next guy, but I also would like a hoverboard. 
and uh, it feels like more money needs to go towards hoverboard, uh, at least where I'm sitting from. I want to say hi to Manifold Markets. Uh, folks heard me say this a couple of times. Uh, this is not promoting them. I don't work there. This is just literally a place where like people uh, do like betting. Uh, and uh, I find out about a lot of news on, on Manifold, specifically on this topic. Uh, and... Um, I can't load it right now. I don't know. Are you guys down? Is there like a bunch of influx? Where are we at? What's the percentage? Hello. Nice to meet everyone. Um, yeah, our site's struggling a little bit right now, um, possibly due to traffic, possibly due to a push that we reverted. So just bear with us. It looks for me, though. I think you, if you keep trying, hopefully it, it will work. But Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but um, percentage does. I'm looking at 50. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, it did just spike up to 50. Initially, it went up to sort of like 40 and hovered at 40 for like an hour after the paper went out. And then during this Twitter spaces, it's gone up from 40 to 50%. Oh, Andrew, that's what you meant when you said there's like prediction markets and we shouldn't hype up too much. I know, I know. I should have, we should have all had accounts and uh, hey, I, uh, huge, I, I'm huge. holding to no one in terms of hype. Uh, and I will just say maybe about myself just for a little bit because there's many people and many don't know me. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Um, hi, everyone. I'm Alex. I, I by chance, by complete chance, started uh, talking about this. I found out, I think, from Alex Kaplan. And then Andrew joined and very much explained. And many of the stuff that I'm asking right now, I've learned just because I'm sitting here and had the luck to just ask folks uh, and then learn. Um, I love hype from the other field. I talk about AI a lot. We talked about this every week. And uh, I got very excited because of the potential of something like this to also accelerate us in that direction. Uh, because a lot of the, you know, the, the artificial intelligence stuff is definitely power restricted if you look like strongly. There's, you know, only the big companies can run the big models, uh, smaller models done locally on your computer at home. And that is, you know, uh, getting power hungry. The the GPUs that run all of the AI pretty much are also like restricted. And so uh, that whole field, if again, and I'll, I'll do the warning part, Andrew, as, as much as you do, but like I'm, I'm the hype guy. If this replicates, if LK99 is actually like easily applicable, right? And we should probably talk about how easy applications do, because Tokomak is still not uh, productionized, and that's the first generation from you know 60 something. Um, but if this uh, materializes, then we're going to get way better hardware. We're going to get way, uh, way, way more AI, basically. Yeah if to cover this and this is my uh, area of excitement i'll go ahead give us uh, some either red blanket one or thing i wanted to say dress. on the manifold thing guys nothing that we say on this space should be considered investment advice please make your own decisions about betting markets and other things and uh, i had one more comment on this uh, really interesting shenyang paper andrew thanks for bringing it to, to our attention here i just tweeted about it as well but it appears uh, from a cursory read of it there was a similar um, research team at a Chinese lab that on um, Saturday published very similar computational results about the band structure of uh, this copper doped lead appetite um, crystal with similar conclusions that there are hints of potential superconductivity. So I would consider that, you know, um, not that we needed it, but potential evidence that Shanae's work uh, would, would stand up in other theoretical calculations as well. Uh, and it's also interesting that, that we didn't notice this, but more broadly, I've, I've heard rumors that this is a huge subject in Chinese research right now. And there are thousands, hundreds of labs uh, in China working on 
both experimentally replicating the results as well as theoretically looking you know, at the reasons why I might replicate. I, I, I think this is a good time to call out because of the luck that I had. I don't know if this is luck, but like because of the chance, I've also collected a group of folks talking about this. If you guys look at the pin tweet, uh, we have uh, uh, tweets from Elsa, and definitely give Elsa a follow. She's been translating a bunch of stuff that comes out from China. And one of the things, you know, to strengthen Alex's point is that uh, there's, uh, you know, th there's some screenshots that say something about um, providers, like suppliers of that appetite, have run out basically in china and there's like multiple multiple attempts there's uh, folks who put up so there's a whole other internet over there as you guys know right so like the world is not only twitter there's also a bunch of stuff happening in different languages and uh, so i want to personally thank elza for, for updating us but also um they are talking about some suppliers of, of these materials in terms of like replication uh, running out um are these materials runoutable? You guys talked before about uh, different superconductors, and Andrew, I think this is for you. Uh, you've talked about different superconductors uh, being hard to produce also because of the materials required. Uh, what are we working with here? Uh, can you break this down to us in terms of like simple, like, is this easy to produce? Well, so um, it sounds like, and Alex mentioned this too in the previous speaker who had worked with me in the past book to this as well. It sounds like this is a difficult to produce right now, you know, like uh, we haven't nailed down the process itself, but I would say that the bulk materials are incredibly cheap, which is awesome, right? So our current generation of superconducting technology, it's all based around rare earth metals, right? And as you pr probably guessed, the name implies those are pretty expensive. This looks like it's made out of lead and copper, mostly, which is great, right? Lead is a lot cheaper than even copper. And, and you know, I mean, uh, wire is as cheap as copper. So this long-term could be pretty awesome in terms of overall price. Like, you just nail down the manufacturing process. You can produce it in high volume. You get that learning rate. You get that economies of scale brought to bear on producing stuff like this. The raw inputs themselves are incredibly abundant, incredibly cheap. Um, which would be pretty awesome. I mean, I guess lead has mild health risks and that would be, have to be something to be considered, right? Um, but yeah, this is, you know, uh, so for fusion energy, one of the most expensive things that goes into a fusion reactor is the high temperature superconducting tape. It's super expensive. You have to buy thousands of kilometers of it and it's made of rare earth metals and those don't come out of everywhere in the world, right? It's not as abundant as lead. Um, so that's pretty exciting for this. If this can really pan out experimental verification, you know, then we start to produce it at scale, get some engineering performance improvements in there, which which are really easy by comparison to finding the material in the first place. Like that's, that's I wouldn't worry about that too much. It's just a matter of time and practice. Um, but the long run cost of this kind of material could in fact be very cheap. And so it's not just saving energy and generating more energy than before, but it's doing so for even cheaper. And it's, it's that would be a disinflationary force on the price of almost every thing you can imagine because Energy is fundamental. Half the cost of aluminum and steel is energy. The cost of shipping goods all across the world is energy. So you know things would be cheaper, more abundant, easier on the climate, easier on our resources. It's a huge win across the board. And this is, uh, you started with materials and you've gotten to, to the end of the hype. I want to let Alex react a little bit and, and say something. Yeah, I think... Um... The, the hype is definitely warranted if something like this is possible, obviously, for many different reasons. The ones that come to mind to, for me right now are in our current process of, you know, trying to decarbonize our economy with a grid that's based more on renewable energy. 
some of the binding constraints are transmission infrastructure as well as energy storage. And these are two places where superconductivity could play an enormous role in transforming our economy. So there's certainly a lot to be excited about. I also want to shout out Sinead's tweet uh, announcing her preprint. Uh, in case you haven't seen it, it is literally just a GIF of Barack Obama dropping a mic with a link to the paper on the archive, which is about as cool of an announcement of a research paper as I think that you can get. Um, it's also an amazing paper that if you haven't read it, I encourage everyone on, on the space here to, to check out and see some of the really detailed analysis that Sinead has done. I um, encourage folks also to, uh, for folks who can't read uh, as much science and scientific journal, I encourage to use the current AI tools. They're great. You can have like a research partner essentially to ask questions uh somebody the only said they worked on a magnetic levitation company what's up joseph can you say hi hi everybody thanks for having me this has been such an are awesome you, conversation are you celebrating tonight uh it's morning for me i'm here in shenzhen china so i wouldn't celebrate with the beer okay. but i want to <laughs> is um is, is this not a, a beer type day uh afternoon Wait, it is afternoon. Okay. It's it's uh, it's one twenty seven. Yeah. So yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no no financial advice, no alcohol advice. However, Joseph, can you tell us like what you worked on and where you came up? So previous and how this yeah. changes whatever you worked on. In my previous life, I was the co-founder of a company called Anti Gravity Industries, which is such a ridiculous and cheesy name in hindsight. But what we were working on at the time was applying magnetic levitation towards consumer scale applications. So what that meant for us was invisible robotics. So imagine, you know, you have a trash can that's on the other side of the room, you have mobility issues, and you want your trash can to come to you. You could say, okay, Google trash can, bring the trash can over to me, or a room that rearranges itself depending on the context. And our core application was floor tiles that had lots of small omnidirectional maglev empowered robots that could move things throughout the space by sticking uh, various you know, like little stickers to the bottoms of surfaces. And then you could apply uh, basic magnetic levitation or basic magnetic pull to move objects from point A to point B. And the issues that we ran into at the time were just raw power issues, right? Like the cost of power to even do that was just overwhelmingly high. And a room temperature superconductor could like reduce that problem by like 50%, 70% and make this like something commercially viable. And there are like dozens of applications that are closer to moving things without physically touching them. Like that has such tremendous value to like so many different commercial applications. And that is what we were talking about. That's what I'm talking about when I say invisible robotics. It's the invisible hand that moves physical things. And I think that this... This changes a lot, and this is really, really fascinating stuff. So uh, you're in China. Uh, I don't know if you also speak uh, Mandarin, I know. My Chinese is, I can speak a little bit because I have a really bad teacher. I can't speak a lot. <laughs> I understand. Uh, so so we, do, we do hear a lot about like a lot of replications that are happening in China. Uh, and this now being out there, Let's, uh, we're getting more and more excited. I'm, I'm all, all the way there, folks. I'm ready for a world with like a hoverboard comes and I, I hover on it. Like I, I'm ready for th this change. I, I know some folks still want to be guarded. I know some folks that burned in the scientific 
um, areas before about uh, levitation and the potentials of like uh, room temperature superconductivity. However, um, this is now available to all of the world and not to like one country or one like research or lab, etc. Uh, Joseph, can you talk about what what this means? The like the, the, the simpler way to replicate this with simple materials um, now exists. If it's lead and copper then this will be replicated in China in a matter of weeks. Like, I would say matter of days, but I don't want to be overly optimistic. But like, you know, China is still a conservative culture, but they're also like, if there's high risk, high reward, a lot of teams will justify taking that risk. Um, this is all over my WeChat moments right now. This is all over, like, this is this is happening. You know, people are very excited about this. And here in Shenzhen, you can throw a rock to, you know, a team that has the materials, not necessarily the materials, but the, the tooling and equipment to reproduce this. Um, whether or not they have the starting materials is, you know, another question. There's definitely a lot of pressure on that. Other people have spoken to that. But if this can be replicated, it will be replicated quickly and it will be commercialized quickly. Like you'll start being able to buy this on Taobao in less than a year if it's actually viable. So batteries that hold a lot of energy. Andrew, can you, uh, just, I'll put you on it because you have some background noise. Andrew, can you talk about like the battery applications here? Uh, are we seeing, because I, I want to just explain to the folks as, as much as I, uh, you know, with no chemistry or physics background understand. Um, battery holds energy essentially until it runs out. Uh, now we're talking about the material that you can run current into and holds it there indefinitely until you interrupt it. Is that correct? Is that not essentially a battery as well? That's that's roughly uh, roughly correct. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's lots of interesting stuff at the material science level there. But the, but the quick gist there, right? So, solar panels have gotten super cheap. We could power everything with solar and wind and so forth. The issue often is um, well, they're intermittent, and so you need lots of battery storage. And there's a point at where you know, imagine you want like solar in Alaska to last all throughout like this perpetual dark winter. You need to build almost like insane amounts of batteries and it's it's hard because the lithium is expensive and lithium ion batteries are the highest density batteries we have right now that are produced on mass so you know this kind of supernatural material you said lithium ion and before you said lead yeah, and copper so, and can you talk about also the difference in sure. materials so basically there's there's a much higher lithium supply crunch on right now like lithium price has gone up a lot over the last few years because of the emphasis on new electric vehicles and also grid scale battery storage um Superconductors can store energy in a very different way. It's not, you know, with zero losses, there's a little bit, but um, you can basically just build a big circuit, uh, very roughly, conceptually speaking, build a big circuit and, and then send the current flowing through that circuit and it'll just, it'll keep circulating in there, right? It's almost like a little flywheel that you spin up, but there's no moving parts. The moving parts is just the electrical current. Um, Oddly enough, there's also flywheel energy storage using mechanical flywheels. This would be a lot. This would be awesome, right? No moving parts. It's made of lead and copper. Super cheap. Mass produce it. Be very high efficiency, right? So normally you lose energy every time you convert between storage formats in and out of the battery. You lose a bit, and so forth. Um, so there'd be a lot of energy storage there, like potential. Also a lot of energy savings. A lot of things in computing we could discuss too as how it affects computer performance and so forth. Um, yeah. 
I, I gotta ask next uh, before Alex and Alex go. Uh, I gotta ask about space and applications and the fact that we talked about Kardashev scale kind of civilization, Andrew. Before Kardashev means kind of generally, I don't know. Somebody's trying to summarize what it would mean for us to become like interplanetary species, etc. Et we know about travel, like faster than light, all the stuff. Let's put them aside for just a sec because you know this is insane enough. However, just at our current speed, getting to like Mars, whatever, a lot of the stuff that we need to do on Mars requires. Uh, a bunch of energy generation. Uh, is lead and copper also existed like in abundance out there, or is this like very abundant on Earth and not very abundant out there? Uh, anybody on panel knows? I, I can feel that quickly. The relative abundance of materials in the solar system, it's just a function of the original stuff that formed us, right? So, you know, the moon is made of basically the same stuff as the Earth, right? In, in terms of its material abundance and composition. I mean, not exactly the same because there's geological transformation processes, but in terms of elements and so forth. Um, so these materials are just universally abundant. You would find them on the moon, you'd find them on Mars. Um, it's, you know, we have this complicated tectonic structure that produces veins of ore and so forth. Who knows what's going on there, but these are not things that only exist on Earth, that's for sure. <laughs> I think it might be helpful to caveat with what are the potential concerns, things we don't know yet, or things that could go wrong um, before we, we get too hype again, as I've done in the past. So some of the things that we might think about, uh, one is in the initial paper by Lee Kim and Kwan, or by um, the other group as well, the, the facts went away at a very low um, current through the superconductor on the order of you know 20 milliamps or so, as was pointed out by a few at the time. Now, we don't actually know the thickness or the dimensions of the material they were using, so we don't know what the current density through that material uh, was at the time where it broke superconductivity, but this could potentially be a flaw in the material if that defect is true regardless of the size, that it just can't hold that much current while superconducting. And in fact, if I remember correctly, some of the initial investigations were a little bit skeptical because of the relatively low density of carriers or electrons in this modified lead apatite crystal. So it could potentially be a drawback of just very low current density. Now, if it is a room temperature superconductor, maybe we just make a bunch of it and we're okay with that. You know, the, the, even if the current density is low, we can just have a bunch of it. But uh, that, that's one potential drawback. Another that we've talked about a few times here is that the synthesis could be really challenging because of uh, which lead ion the copper has to replace. Um, but, you know, I think this would be a really big deal, but it's worth also considering some of the potential drawbacks uh, or, or downsides if, if this all plays out as well. For sure. Thanks for the I, I, I want to counter that a little bit. Just for people that joined recently, I might have mentioned this before. So the exact same thing happened the last time a Nobel Prize was awarded for a, a better superconductor at higher temperature. Not saying a Nobel Prize is being awarded here, but 1986, they discovered yttrium barium oxide as a new superconducting material, right? At the, same, at the time, it had a very low critical current. It had a very low critical field. It did not have a lot of promises in engineering material. Over decades of exploring related materials and exploring that adjacent search space of, of possible compositions, we have developed materials now that carry thousands of amps per square millimeter of cross-sectional area that can withstand fields that are in the in the several Tesla range, right? 
And, and that's what's enabled us to start doing things like build fusion reactors. So if this material pans out experimentally, I would really not be too concerned about the process of engineering improvements to expand its performance envelope to become more applicable to industrial real world applications. I, I would actually say that's almost a given. Like I'm, I'm just not, that the, the difficulty of that in comparison to finding a material at this temperature, it's just, you know, it's a hundred to one kind of thing. So that, that it's true that this material might not pan out. Like we had this graphene rush in the early 2000s and everyone thought we could have graphene supercapacitors and that didn't pan out, right? Um, the biggest threat here is that it just doesn't experimentally verify, right? That's that's the proof in the pudding. If that lands, then when you say gonna... when you say doesn't, I want to like slide in right here. When you say doesn't, it means that like in the past seventy-two hours or whatever, a week something since the paper dropped, we haven't seen uh, more like serious labs showing us that it does. However, we've seen some experimental evidence like on, on Twitter, and we probably should talk about this as well at some point. Uh, but it's been a very short time so far like it, it, it's oh, not yeah. like it doesn't replicate it, it's just like we're waiting and we're getting it's cursory important. evidence yeah. yeah we're getting cursory evidence forward and we're seeing two simulation attempts one of them is from a very respectable lab well, was it berkeley i believe uh, you said and uh, one of them is from china kind of saying about the same things while we're also waiting for many labs to kind of work together in figuring out we saw an indian lab uh, that, that i think also uploaded a paper today that said their application attempts did not succeed i think they posted some stuff on facebook uh their material looked like the, there's a lot of it there was a heavy and, and um the original paper there's a video that's floating around i think there's two videos i, I posted the longer version on, on my south stack is that um it's a very thin piece of of, of lead and lead in copper, I think. A very thin piece, and only one side of it levitates. So, Andrew, finally, after all this time, we got sidetracked. I would love if you can explain the Meissner effect, Meissner effect and uh, how it relates to superconductivity and what we've seen and what we're waiting for. When people say, we want to see the rock levitate, what do they mean? Totally, totally. Great question. Yeah, so Meissner effect, it's, um, it basically means that this object perfectly expels magnetic fields, right? And so there's two types of superconductors. Right? There's type 1 and type 2, very creative naming scheme. Um, type 1 superconductors will completely expel the magnetic field. And, and so it just can't penetrate. It's like a shield. Type 2, magnetic, uh, type two superconductors are a little bit different. Um, actually, what can happen is that magnetic fields can penetrate at certain locations, but they become what's called quantized, meaning they, they can only exist in certain amounts. And they exist as these little whirlpools or vortices that get uh, stuck to what we think are impurities or, or defections in, in the crystal lattice. And um, so when you see something levitate, what's happening there is that the magnetic flux has been trapped or it's been pinned as it passes through this material in these little quantized regions. And that's why it kind of has this levitating or, or floating effect, right? Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, that is... Yeah, that's the kind of gist of it. There's a little bit more. I've seen, there. I, I, yeah, I've seen the floating before, and I think all the floating that I've seen or levitating uh, had um, like coldness effects come out of it, like like vapor almost, right? Um, we're waiting for this, but without like cool temperatures, essentially. And um, if we don't see this, could this still be a superconductor? Like if this doesn't, uh, if Meissner effect is not happening, could we still look at like a superconductor um, a material? 
Uh, but snow, it's it's sort of it's pretty. It's the other half of the coin, right? It's it's the one half is it conducts electricity with zero resistance, and the other is that it has the Meissner effect. Um, there, there's one way to think about these things as being incredibly linked, right? It's that if I have a piece of metal and I and I try to uh, have a magnetic field, uh, if I bring a magnet close to that piece of metal, what that metal experiences is a changing magnetic field, right? And what that does inside the metal is that it induces some voltage. This is called magnetic induction. It's the principle behind DC motors, like electric motors, electric generation. It all works by changing magnetic fields that make current flow in conductors. And so if the material has zero resistance, then a magnetic then a current will form perfectly, right? It'll, it'll have, you know, it'll be not uh, taxed at all. It'll be full strength. It'll be exactly opposing that induced magnetic field and that current will produce its own field and that field cancels out the original field inside the conductor or on the other side of the conductor so it's sort of sort of like other half of the same thing one thing though the flux pinning as far as i can tell alex might correct me on this but it is a characteristic of type 2 superconductors not necessarily type 1 um so whether it floats or not whether it locks or not that's a compelling video demonstration but because of the like likely impurities in the sample, right? Uh, I don't know if that's the test I'd look for, right? Again, I'd look for the publication from Argonne National Lab, from Oak Ridge National Lab. I really trust the Department of Energy National Labs. They're they're pretty much the Ivy League of of science in North America in a lot of ways, um, or or other you know other well established labs in Japan and China and and, and other countries like that. Um, but again, I'd look most carefully at the people working with the original authors, number one, for sure. So if we do see a floating rock and like, you know, from a respectable place, we're basically there at 100% and the manifold market's going to resolve and we're moving no. to a bright future. So no. There are other reasons it could float, as we've discussed pretty extensively with, with regards to diamagnetism. Um, and in fact, some of the rumors from the early Chinese labs were saying that uh, the magnetic susceptibility graphs they were finding in similar modified lead apatite crystals, you know, showed signs of diamagnetism, but did not show signs of perfect diamagnetism, i.e. flux pinning, um, or, you know, the zero resistivity hallmark of a superconductor. And then, Andrew, to follow up, I, I don't think uh, flux pinning is necessary for all um, type 1 superconductors. Oh, it's a characteristic of type two, 2, is what I was saying. Some have it, some don't. There's two types. Some have it, some don't. When you see yeah. things levitate, that's flux spinning. That means it's type 2. If um, I would say it's, it's a very optimistic sign if they're seeing diamagnetism, but not the Meissner effect. Because uh, it, it, it's intuitive. Like, if you had a, a chunk of material of which, like, only a small percentage of it was a superconducting phase you would detect maybe some signs of diamagnetism and you definitely wouldn't see bulk Meissner effect. So that is consistent with what you'd expect with, you know, what people think they have, which is maybe a, a small amount of this LK99 mixed with a bunch of other junk. So I want to talk about how easy this is potentially to replicate. And we've talked about this uh, a few times before in regards of whether or not this could be real, right? So we've talked about this in, in uh, uh, from a perspective of serious scientists, um, cited scientists saying this is real, don't want to lose their 
reputation, previous attempts at superconductivity, I think Bayes or Bayes, I don't remember, were retracted by nature, so the whole field is still like raw, and some other attempts, like Andrew, you, you, you said uh, back in the day also didn't materialize, um, sorry for the pun, and um, we're, we're now saying that um, if if the guys, if the material kind of, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought here. Uh, Alex, can you pick up? I, I yeah, think I, I mean, I, the only um, people who have claimed to make this material, you know, it took them many years to do so, uh, even after seeing some trace of it. Uh, as oh, yeah, here, here's my train of thought. And you helped me find it. Uh, I, I tried to get here. So we're talking about a potentially uh, easy-ish uh, way to reproduce, which if this was like a, an attempt to falsify information or say like, hey, we have something, uh, they wouldn't release this like as easy. And we're now seeing a lot of that. Andrew, you're correct in the fact that like, you know, we still need to see for full, this is happening, folks. Humanity has moved forward. We need to see our application for uh, 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 you said Argon National Lab, right? Like a reputable lab, and maybe in China as well. We need to see this. However, based on the ease of um, accessing these materials, like we've talked about lead apatite and, and copper and, and some other stuff, um, we're seeing attempts, and some of them are on Twitter, to replicate this in like a home lab almost, right? In a home experience. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following uh, Iris, and I know definitely that the manifold market has been changed based on uh, um, this one Russian chemist or whoever that attempts to do this. And Andrew, to your previous point, like the only folks who say they have effectively done this uh, was the Koreans. I think it looks from the, at least from the pictures that are actually not videos yet, that there could be another replication potentially. Definitely from the way uh, Iris talked about. And I had definitely seen both, you know, um, takes of hate towards that. And, and both uh, takes of like, oh, this is awesome. Somebody's replicating this, you know, Iron Man style in, in, in the living room. I think it moved to the living room. Um, I want to hear your guys' uh, um, experience with like reading those tweets. And if you know, if you saw it, and what do you think? Uh, do, do we, now that we have two simulations, I guess, uh, did we effectively have like another application potentially in the house? Would that make sense? Or would that be like too crazy for this very crazy endeavor anyway? I mean, I don't think anyone is claiming that this is replication. As Xi'an was explaining earlier, this is not even really proof that the material superconducts. It's just some trace that you would expect to see if it were to superconduct. But it's really non-conclusive because it's a simulation at zero Kelvin. So we're not dealing with any of the effects of heat. Um, if we want to talk about replication efforts, we've got the man himself, uh, Andrew McCall. We could uh, <laughs> share some of his thoughts on how it's going with the furnaces. Yeah, Andrew is lecturing the furnaces, and I think he dropped out because uh, he's busy. Uh, I'm not sure he wants to pick it up, uh, but I do want to, like, I, I'm getting folks asking me about, quote-unquote, Russian enemy girl, right? So I, I want to talk about this a little bit, and um, maybe Andrew as well. Yeah, I was following that thread with a lot of interest and curiosity. I don't know what the extent of replication there was. Um, you know, I... I personally would say it's incredibly difficult to replicate this from a material science kind of chemistry, you know, production process perspective. Like it's, I would be blown away if someone could do this in their lab or, or in their house or in their garage or whatever, 
without the original people there, I would just be blown away. I'd, I'd say that's incredible. Um, it sounds like a tough process. It sounds like they did thousands of materials over 20 years to perfect this process and that there's even things that were almost happenstance or, or potentially serendipitous in its process to be discovered this way. So I think it's, uh, I would not index personally heavily on sort of citizen scientist independent attempts at verification. I would look closely at scientists that collaborate with the original authors uh, that have, you know, that have experienced track record in this field of doing difficult material preparations and so forth. It's really an art as much as it's a science, you know, it's like these, these guys are not just, uh, you know, like following recipes on a, on a, on a diagram or something. It's like, there's a lot of implicit skill that goes into this to understand contamination, cross-contamination hazards and, and so forth. Yep. Uh, ben, do you have any, any opinions on this? I'll just say to folks, I pinned the two tweets from uh, Iris, Iris IGB, I want to say. Um, and, you know, it's a person, a chemist with a kill in their living room uh, that talks about science in their tweets that I haven't seen many folks uh, who were in our spaces or different other folks who are credentials who say that that science doesn't shake out. Like, like uh, this is my sign to, towards all of this. And we're all waiting. There's no video, but there's definitely I two pictures of two specks of dust potentially levitating inside the pipette. And there's two you know, two angles of this pipette. Now, everything can be faked, but I want to hear Alex and then Ben's your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, just the only thing I would say here is I've seen a lot of negativity towards Iris on Twitter. And I think uh, Iris is clearly an experienced scientist who's trying out a fun project. So I would uh, just encourage everyone to try to be positive and supportive here and, and not really come out with a lot of the negativity we've seen towards Iris. I, I think a lot of these experiments are really cool. I don't think any of us are in a position to validate or invalidate the credibility of anything that Iris is finding in them, but um, certainly cheering them on and uh, wishing them all the best. I, uh, so, so uh, Ben, go ahead. And... Oh yeah, um, I was just gonna say it's, incredibly entertaining at the very least and also kind of genius like you can see the thought process to how they're modifying the procedure and it's extremely creative um i've been sending like screenshots of that thread to people in my department to see if they want to try it out and i'm just getting messages from another phd student uh he's like we should we should try this and he's like planning all the steps they'll need and the equipment we'll need to to replicate iris's replication so that could be pretty fun <laughs> we'll see Yep. Um, go ahead. One more thing about replication here is um, I don't think any of us can really say what the timeline is for when we might see this material replicated, if, if it will replicate, given the challenges of fabrication and synthesis. But I do want to emphasize that it'll be very hard to prove that this material doesn't work uh, anywhere in the near future. Um, it's very tough to know whether any failure of superconductivity is due to the material synthesis or the properties of the material itself. So we likely won't have conclusive evidence against this anytime soon. So if, if it's a yes, and we get like a picture of Iris levitating on like a homemade, you know, Iron Man style uh, levitation board from back of the future, that's a definite yes if we get the video and many other people start replicating this, but uh, we don't get the definite no. Is that what you're saying, Alex? So like, it's a definite yes, it's a definite yes, if it, <laughs> but it's not easy to see a definite no at this point. Well, I wouldn't necessarily get the definite yes from a picture on Twitter. I would love to see some data with, uh, you know, the original um, authors potentially involved with a resistivity plot and with some real instrumentation that can be replicated um, and 
you know, has been reviewed in terms of setup and everything. This is nothing against IRIS. It's just very hard to collect really high quality, rigorous data in home setup like that. So yeah, if we sure. do see, yes, it's probably going to be from a lab, like one of the national labs Andrew was mentioning that has, you know, a lot of plots that are proving it. And if we get like a definite yes, it's a definite yes. But you're saying like a, a definite no is going to be hard to come by. Yeah, and that is one of the big differences with this paper versus other results is it's actually like, it's hard to make this, but there is a way to do it. Um, if you looked at, you know, some of the previous superconductor hype around Dios et al, or some of the silver nanoparticles in the DAPA and Pombi, there was really no inkling whatsoever into how you'd manufacture these materials. They were kind of making these claims with a lot less, um, I don't want to say substantiation, but just uh, a lot less engagement with the broader scientific community. So I'm very encouraged by, you know, Hyun Ta Kim's reaching out to scientists and the reports of a lot of collaboration and replication efforts. I think that's a really positive sign. So folks who claimed they saw the rock fly, now want to help everyone else to also get the rocks flying. Uh, Manifold, you had your hand up for a while. What's up? Yeah, I just wanted to come in quickly and ask, because you were mentioning how it's going to be hard to prove that it doesn't work for a while. Um, and also, you were also mentioning, like, you know, this hoverboard flowing on stuff. But realistically, one of the big questions we have asked is, like, how, what questions should we actually be asking to sort of try and predict um, and operationalize, like, the question, will there be superconductors and what impact will they have on the world? Because that's the question everyone really wants to know the answer to, right? Um, so it's like quite hard for a lot of people to think of the right questions to ask because you don't know what the right questions to ask are if you're if you don't have an intimate understanding of like the physics and science that goes behind it. Um, so I, I yeah I guess just throwing the open question out there of what like what how can we offer operationalize these questions by besides just asking will there be superconductors or will this paper replicate are there other questions you think we should be asking and predicting instead from sort of a scientific viewpoint i think no really um whether this thing is a superconductor or not it's it's in my mind it's kind of binary i guess other questions might i mean not not to be a downer right but i, I know you're trying to maximize the surface area coverage of prediction markets on this phenomenon but i think really it's a matter of science and you know if it pans out as a superconductor that's 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 a very binary outcome right like there's not there's not kind of superconduct it's not like you know you can't be kind of pregnant right like someone is either pregnant or not um that'd be my take on that <laughs> there's um, lots of scientific questions and measurements but they're pretty straightforward right does it conduct at DC with near zero resistance, as, as far as you measure it? Does it perfectly expel magnetic fields? Does it, and so forth, so forth. So the scientific measurements are pretty straightforward, but they're all just, you know, that's how you confirm it's a superconductor. So this question of, is it a superconductor? That's like kind of a, uh, that's the outcome of measurement. Like that's just a, a name we use to classify a certain type of material. If that pans out, there would be a thousand second and third order effects in the price of copper and the price of energy in the uh, in the available grid supply and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and those would be really interesting to explore too. Would it be fair to say that the world would go mad with abundance of uh, like opportunities because there's abundance of energy? I think the, uh, I think the recession was probably be canceled. <laughs> like there's a lot to happen. do, right? Yeah, capitalism turns on when, when you hear something like this. Alex? 
I mean, yeah, it is kind of fun going back to my original thread to think about what might happen given it replicates. So, you know, for the manifold question, if if it's a yes, like you're going to know, everyone's going to be talking about it. It's going to be the front page news that this thing is confirmed. Um, and it, it is going to be a really big shock to the world. I think uh, you'll very quickly probably see significant amount of government interest and involvement in deploying this material to really high value sectors. I think that the obvious ones like energy storage and transport and uh, transmission are likely to see, you know, a lot of deployment, but you can also think of, you know, basically every sector being affected by this in some way. This is, it's electricity. Like look around you, <laughs> look at your phone right now. There's, there's a lot of stuff that uses electricity. Um, and I think that you would, you would likely see a really rapid uh, amount of investment into the area. Um, uh, yeah. It would be dope, man. Uh, as long as, as long as it replicates in this way, everybody's like listening and trying to uh, to see the other attempt and, and big labs. And this is also why many people are cautious to, to get too excited, right? Like, because how do you prepare for a world like this where many, many things are changing? Uh, I think it would be helpful to some of the people in the audience. Uh, first of all, folks in the audience, if you work at this, if this like materially is your expertise area, feel free to DM Andrew uh, and me to, to come up. Uh, we would love to talk to you. We would love to interview you. We would love to hear kind of, <laughs> if you have a definitive, uh, a definite no, we would also like to hear because it doesn't look like it at the present. This is like very hard to say. This is impossible. So the world has caught on to this like scent. And now, whether or not it's here or somewhere else, it's in this area, right, Andrew? That's, that's what you said. Like, every time we explore a different area, there's multiple possibilities. Uh, we suddenly find something, and then we're going to start digging and investing. Uh, to that, uh, there was a video from a, 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 I think, Chinese vlogger that he actually walked through the Quantum Energy Lab. Uh, it's video. It's on my feed. You guys can look it up. Uh, I lose thread when I start looking up and talking. There's a video of this Chinese logger. He then went to visit, kind of, uh, I think on Friday, the guys from Q Energy, which is like the, the LK99 guys. And it's like a very unassuming basement somewhere in, like, in, in Seoul. Very small. Like, it's not like a lab. It's not like a building. It, it's a basement. And it was underinvested. I think for sure, no matter what, it will be overinvested very, very soon. Right, Andrew? Is this uh, is this a fair assessment of things? <laughs> will they get more funding now that like the world has cut on to the cent? I, I think the funding is gonna, you know, this phrase "keep your powder dry" is apt. Um, I think yeah, like these, if other labs ver verify this, I think there'll be a tidal wave of funding into this area, both in non-dilutive public funding for research teams and you know early stage commercial applications. But I mean, just you know. So the last time this happened, right, 1986, I said this a couple of times, but, you know, it's just interesting to illustrate. It's, uh, we had this new supernatural and, um, you know, it only works at liquid nitrogen temperatures, so it's super tough to cool it down, it's expensive and so forth. Uh, so there, there's not as much of a gold rush, right, for applications. If this pans out, I, I already have venture capitalists messaging me, asking me if, uh, you know, what, what, uh, what companies should I be looking at or, you know, what's the stuff going on here. Um, and there's going to be a lot of that, but it's sort of something I'd say, like, we all get a performance fee in the betterment of humanity in our collective quality of life in the abundance and of cheap energy. So I think, I think we all win here. Um, there's going to be companies, yeah, for sure. 
I, I would recommend VCs shouting out to Andrew, uh, the couple of spaces we had. You have a great way to explain very technically like challenging things. And the other thing I wanted to shout out, and Andrew, thanks for, for joining me and co-hosting, is that Andrew has a, a thread talking about superconductors and their application from like, what, three weeks before this blew up, Andrew? Um, I, he knew. He was too yeah, much. How, yeah. how, how did you know two months ago to write this thread? What, what pulled you? Tell us. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was actually just kind of, well, I'd worked on this stuff for a while. And I had no idea this discovery was going to be announced, of course. But it was just, I was just trying to think, like, what are things that I think could be on our near-term horizon, like in 10, 20, 30 years, that would inject a bit of optimism back into our collective narrative? I think there's a lot of sort of like this pessimistic perspective that we can't solve our way out of humanity's biggest problems. And I'm an adamant believer that we can. Because our history as a species has been successively solving these massive problems time and time again. And so I would never not bet on science and technology to show us the way out. Um, and so this is one of those things where this would be like the transistor, it, you know, it's just an anecdote about that. So before the transistor was developed, tons of scientists and engineers knew exactly what they would do with it, right? It's like, if only we had a really tiny kind of current gate, if only we had this tiny like vacuum tube version, because the function it could perform was quite clear, and they knew if they could have that, they could design all these wonderful things. They couldn't have predicted computing as it exists today, but they had lots of ideas about uh, you know, analog electrical circuits that would be useful in, in radios and that kind of stuff. Um, and, then, and so they were looking for it, so they're trying to make it happen. And then when they nailed it, that, <laughs> we have the whole IT computer evolution, right? So this is a similar case where it's like, there's a lot of places this, this is a known win. And people have been searching for it for a long time for that reason. I thought it was a matter of time before this happens. Um, you know, I've I've uh, chanced into a couple things before. Uh, I uh, well, we won't get to that, but I'll, I could talk about that another time. But um, yeah, I think this is just an exciting thing, and I think this has been top of mind for me for a while. I've worked with this technology in a few different places. My first job in physics was in 2012 at a condensed matter laboratory that used a certain kind of microscope to search for this kind of material. I wasn't a very advanced scientist at that point in my career, so I was you know, just really helping out. Um, but since then, I've worked with the same stuff in accelerator laboratories that are you know, making particles go the speed of light. And this is, it's one of these things. This is a miracle technology, and it's only really exists so far in these esoteric physics research applications, which has just been, think... happened to have been my world. So it's sort of top of mind for me as someone that's like, ah, if we had this, here's where it would get us, right? Like, it's so pressingly clear to me. Um, yeah. I think I get why you're so. Once again, Alex, I think I get why you're so guarded about like uh, saying yes. We the repeatable labs, etc. Like this is a this is a big deal. You were excited for for a long time, and and now you get to like talk about this thing that you love with with passion. And I appreciate that you bring this uh, this here as well and explaining this very simply. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, Andrew. I just if we can get down to details here, I'd be super interested to hear in your experience working on fusion. How, like, what are the actual reactor designs that we would put one of these room temperature superconductors to work with? Is it simply just, you know, replacing HTS tapes with uh, new HTS tapes that are better uh, without the liquid nitrogen? Or are you really going to be able to configure something like a more compact Stellarator or a better tokamak? Um, what are the, uh, or have anyone even thought about what the designs might be? Wait, isn't like isn't better talking like exist in helium? Isn't that what they talked about like eight months ago, where they have like a way more compact, uh, uh, you know, fusion reactor design, and they're just like energy restricted? I think 
Tokamak is old news, no? I, I can comment on that a little bit. So Tokamak is the most well-researched and well-developed fusion concept that we have. Um, it has the most amounts of track record behind it and consistently better results. In fusion, the big number to think about is usually what's called confinement, which is basically like how well does it keep energy in? You know, in fusion, it's like you're trying to fill a cup until it overflows. And once it starts overflowing, it'll just keep producing energy. It's like unlimited water comes out or something. Um, that's kind of the mental model. So it's really, you know, confinement with magnetic Unlimited field. Unlimited water comes out. Sorry, I have to repeat this slowly. <laughs> it's a cup that you fill. And then so let's suppose, water let's suppose there's a cup with a hole in the bottom and you're trying to fill it with water really fast. And if it starts to overflow, it'll just start completely spitting out water forever. You just have unlimited water now. It's amazing, right? It's great in the desert. Um, but there's a hole in the bottom. So if you can't pour water in faster than it pours out, then you'll never reach this what's called a fusion condition or triple point or loss in criteria. These are just names for people that might be familiar. But it basically means that the fusion reaction is self-sustaining. So, um, so yeah, where this would come into play in fusion is really interesting. So tokamaks and stellarators, and there's lots of other fusion reactor designs that use magnetic fields at a high strength. Um, helion is, is a little different. I, I do believe they use HTS coils in some of their machine. Um, they've chosen not to publish a lot of results on their technical milestones. Wait, I guess, uh, for folks in the audience, HTS coils is uh, uh, the, the second uh, uh, superconductor tape? Right, sorry, yeah. So HTS yeah. is high temperature superconducting tape, and that was initially discovered in 1986. That was the first time this really big jump in temperature was discovered. Um, that's been that performance of that tape and its ability to carry high current and withstand high field has improved immensely over the last three decades. And so now it's at a point where it's, you know, hundreds of times better than it first was when it was discovered. And it's produced in thousands of kilometers quantity, right? You measure in kilometers because it's like this like super thin tape. Um, so I, I can speak to the, the design trade-off here because this is kind of like, I guess, my day job. So um, you have a plasma that's 1 million degrees Celsius, right? And you have to make a bottle around it using magnetic fields. So those fields get weaker the further they are from the magnet. And the magnet is really just a superconducting loop that carries tons of current, right? It has thousands of windings in it, has thousands of wraps um, in a single magnet. And these magnets are the biggest cost driver for a fusion power plant. So the closer you can get your magnet, the conductor, to the plasma, the less current you need to run through it, meaning the less power it takes, meaning the more efficient your fusion reactor can become. And the further away you have to put it because of, oh, sorry, sorry, let me rephrase it. So the closer you can put the magnet to the plasma, the cheaper the reactor becomes, but the more heat it gets, right? Because the plasma is releasing these high energy neutrons. Those neutrons can pass through solid material. They bounce around, they emit heat, right? It's very hot. Think of it like a furnace. And um, if your coils get too close to that plasma furnace, then they will do what's called quench. They will fall out of superconducting state. And that is bad. <laughs> that will damage them. It can destroy them over time. It basically means that your, your reactor design has stopped working. So that's the biggest trade-off. It's basically how close can we get the coils to the plasma without getting them too hot, right? Um, so the temperature is the number one thing. It's the number one thing. And then also, it's the cost of the materials that go into the tape, right? That's the biggest cost in the fusion plant. The second biggest cost is the cryogenics to keep them cold. So this material, it kind of like just 
completely blasts apart the three biggest issues in magnetic confinement fusion, assuming it can get engineered to perform very well in the future with high currents and high fields. It gets your coils closer to the plasma. That's awesome. It makes them incredibly cheap to mass produce because it's lead, which is cheaper than copper, not made of rare earth materials. That's awesome. Um, and it eliminates the need for cryogenics. So these are, these are just, you know, and that's, you know, that's just for this one big kind of um, moonshot experiment. And there's a thousand other places it would be awesome too. So I just want to clarify this one thing and uh, hopefully you guys can hear me still. My headphones died. <laughs> We've been here for a while, but uh, we're still here. It's still very interesting and still many, many more new people come in and they have questions as well. So I think we'll open up for some of the new folks on stage as well. Um, the... I guess uh, I wanted to get to uh, LGD. You came up and you had maybe a question. And I think, Andrew, <laughs> you're going to, be, to sign off a little bit, but we'll keep going a little bit more. So, LGD, do you have a question or a comment? And they dropped. <laughs> uh, Alex, I think you had one more question for, for Andrew. And, Andrew, feel free to, yeah, to, to sign off. And then at some point, we all go to sleep. Yeah, guys, I, uh, I've got to make some coffee in the morning. Uh, I got to go soon here. My, my main thing was, I think, about the fusion reactor technology specifically is a space that I think is worth watching really closely to see, uh, you know, what the implementation time for HTS uh, uh, would actually be here. I think it's probably the first order, most important thing. If you think about the holy grails of physics, it's basically high temperature superconductivity and, you know, stable nuclear fusion for everyone. And uh, this is what you learn when you're like in eighth grade or something in science class and your teacher wants you to be a scientist. These are the things you can discover that in like a grand unified theory, we may be close to two of them. So uh, it could be pretty exciting. I will leave it at that. Thanks all for, for joining this space. I got to go to bed, but um, I really appreciate Andrew and Alex putting this. Hey, Alex, thanks for joining me. Talk soon. Andrew, I don't know if he addresses to you or not, but uh, let, let me know. I'm still here, yeah. I, I can be for another little bit, but I think we've covered the groundwork here pretty well. So can times. you do so a, any of the questions? Like yeah. One last uh, recap, if you don't mind, uh, of today's events, updating <laughs> the last event. I know I've asked you this multiple times, however, uh, always new folks coming in. And I think it's uh, at least one of them is going to get like a good recording like you did previously, with like a video and words and time. So um, why, why are we here? We're talking for the past two hours, I think. Yeah, sure. So one last uh, go around the merry-go-round. Um, okay, so a few hours ago now, I guess it was, yeah, a few hours, um, a scientist from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which is a large uh, government-funded lab associated with Berkeley University in California, um, she published a simulation result on Archive. And Archive is a preprint server. It's where things aren't peer-reviewed yet. But in her acknowledgments, she did say she talked about her talked with her colleagues about it. So it had some, you know, it had some uh, more than one person looked at it. And she's a professional scientist from a very well reputable lab, right? Very high quality of science comes out of LVNL. They invented the cyclotron. They all, all this kind of stuff. So I, I put a lot of faith in them on this. Um, the simulation results were basically this: the Korean authors in their original publication earlier this week, right? Seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, they put forward this idea that their material has a certain crystal structure, right? It's mostly made of lead. Um, but when you introduce copper into that, 
it can kind of replace some of the lead atoms in certain places. And when it does, it slightly changes the structure of the crystal, just a tiny bit. They measured a 0.5% contraction in volume, half a percent smaller, right? But um, they put forward an explanation that this is associated with this kind of uh, energy level opening up, which we call a band. And a previous speaker said, you know, this is a good explanation, but energy bands in a material, it's kind of like a staircase or a shelf. And it tells you where can electrons fit in terms of energy in the structure. And what the simulation from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, who is from Sinead Griffin, I, uh, her, she's actually on Twitter. Um, she posted this originally. Um, but her simulations show that if she models this material in this idealized sense, then she finds the existence of these energy bands uh, that are very flat in, in their shape and right around the Fermi surface. And these are just kind of some words I'm throwing out there for people that don't like physics. But really, I guess the gist is, if this material was a superconductor, then according to the most prevailing theories of superconductivity today, it would have this structure. It's very suggestive, right? So some caveats on that. You know, this structure doesn't mean it's a superconductor, right? That's a measurement. Um, but this does align with our understanding of it so far. Um, another one, another caveat, is that this simulation is not a perfect model of reality. It's very idealized, right? The solutions or the methods it use are approximate solutions, but they're approximate solutions that are very accurate, right? This is, there's a lot of effort that's gone into the simulation over time. You know, she's not a scientist that just wrote this on her own and then simulated it. Um, these are codes that have been developed by dozens or hundreds of scientists over many years to get better and better with time, running on large government-funded supercomputers that are, you know, funded by the Department of Energy and so forth. So it's a very, very serious kind of simulation result. It also corroborates almost perfectly the simulation results of uh, a team from China uh, that published a few days ago as well. Um, so there, there's some convergence here in the simulations of this material. It's not a, you know, it's not a win completely yet, right? So that's going to be the validation of more material that's been produced in collaboration with the original authors that has the same properties measured on the bench. Um, but this is a big, in my mind, this is a big thing to be like, okay, wow, this, you know, if this was true, we would be seeing this so far, right? It's not a guarantee, but this is a green light, right? And, it, and they're green until they're not. Uh, and that'll be really the test is, I'm gonna guess in a week or two, maybe less, um, we'll have experimental results that, that can be a lot more telling than the simulations, but the simulations agree so far. Awesome, Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, I know this is maybe past the better, and tomorrow you're probably gonna have some TV interviews to explain this as well. Uh, I appreciate your time here as well. Thanks for coming up. Uh, I'm still interested in hearing like a bunch of other stuff, but Andrew, I'll let you sign off and then we'll continue. Thanks guys, yep. Um, yeah, I, uh, I hope to write more about physics stuff in the future. Uh, that's kind of my hobby right now. Thanks for having me up here, this was great. Uh, you know. Physics is fundamentally the force by which we understand nature and grow closer to it over time as a species. And I think it unlocks what is basically magic, right? Nuclear power is one of those. It has great destructive potential, but great uh, potential to generate energy too. So I think, um, I hope everyone kind of gets more interested in this space and, and uh, a little more optimistic for what the future can be if we collaborate, if we invest in basic science research, if we take these bold risks on ourselves um, 
And I, uh, yeah, I hope to have uh, more conversations in the future. Thank you for coming up. Thank you for explaining. Thank you for summarizing. I know it's not easy. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again, folks. Feel free to let us, you know, give us subjects and uh, come up here as well. I have had multiple people asking me multiple questions in the audience. And now we have a few folks on stage, uh, some folks that I haven't talked to before. So I will moderate <laughs> if you start uh, uh, being like very Twittery and, and spammy. However, uh, if we keep this interesting, I think people will get some value out of this. I had people ask me questions about uh, specifically applications to computers and to AI and to how this affects, you know, computation. And uh, folks on stage, feel free to chime in. Uh, and the other one is, um, well, th there's many other things that changes, right? So there's a lot of questions, but uh, since I do talk about AI uh, every week and I haven't since the, the paper released, um, how does this change computers? Are computers easier, cheaper to run, but just the specific nature of like there's more electricity or are I there more to, to this i can try to field this one if you want yeah go ahead so um it, there's a big if here and that is if i mean well first if it's real <laughs> but then uh if if it's real they're doing bulk synthesis currently and in order to make this useful for the semiconductor you know manufacturing method you have to develop methods of of um applying this material by by vapor deposition, either physical or chemical vapor deposition. Um, and there are different parts of semiconductor device manufacturing processes that use these two techniques. Uh, you can think of PVD, physical vapor deposition, as you have some chunk of material, you heat it up to vaporize it, and then it redeposits on some target. Uh, whereas chemical vapor deposition is a lot more sophisticated, um, and you can think of it like, let's say you, you coat a material with one type of Lego block, and then you you have another material come that like removes part of the Lego, leaving something behind. And you do this over multiple cycles to get some complicated structure. And so um, if, if it turns out that LK99 is a superconductor, uh, the race will be on to kind of see whether it can be, it can be used with PVD and CVD. One problem is that the semiconductor device manufacturing process uh, has no tolerance for defects. If you have a single defect in your chip, right, the chip can short. So you need to have defect concentrations that are extremely low, which will really limit its application uh, in, you know, like from going into, say, your Intel chip or something like this. Um, but there are, there are definitely applications in other types of semiconductor devices. Uh, so maybe like, I don't know, uh, larger, larger things, basically, like transistors or uh, diodes. What about, um, what about um, um, scale of computation? Oh, sorry. One second, please. Somebody's talking over me. Um, uh, ben, what about scale of computation? Would we like? Would we see like? Hmm. Because te technically, like for a smaller uh, piece of this electricity, if it's superconductor, now we, we don't have to, to keep it super cool. What if it's just in like a neural link chip? Does that like run the chip for longer? Which means like the chip needs to be smaller because you know there's battery and there's charging, etc. Yeah, so someone should correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if you, I mean, well, you if you replaced, say, copper or aluminum, which are you know common metallization processes in these chips, with uh, something like LK99, you would have basically no heat loss, um, which would mean yeah, you wouldn't have to cool your chips. You could run them maybe faster. I, I don't, I'm not a I'm not like a computer engineer, but I think that would definitely be an improvement. It wouldn't hurt. Um, but yeah, I I think that it would be. I mean. 
the semiconductor uh, manufacturing process is like maybe a decade delayed from basic research. So that that would be a while from now. I want uh, to just uh, intervene with like a stupid realization that I just had. You said semiconductor uh, industry, which is uh -huh. a superconductor. Um, and both of them are conducting something. So we're potentially looking at conducting information faster because like it's uh, like not resistant at all. Um, <laughs> that's interesting that the semi semiconductor industry is now getting into super drive. Uh, I want to hear more uh, opinions about how this affects computing and AI, folks. If you're in the audience and you're into this and you want to talk about like an explosion of whatever X potential that this gives computation, feel free to raise your hand and come up. Uh, Joseph, you have your hand up. What's up? Well, hypothetically, a room temperature superconductor would have a pretty significant impact on quantum computing. Now, uh, there's a caveat there because we're Ooh. not really sure of the major impacts of quantum computing yet. But if you didn't have to deal with massive amounts of cooling to maintain superconductivity on the chip, then you're going to see a massive reduction in complexity of the platform in itself. And you'll be able to put more qubits together and you'll be able to get more meaningful results out of the system. And, you know, like it's hypothetical because you're like, implementing a hypothetical solution to facilitate another hypothetical solution, but that's one area where this could have a major impact on computation at the fundamental level. Yeah, great. Uh, I want to say hi to other folks here. What's up, uh, George? And what's up, Van? I'm sorry, Vanshi? Uh, let's say Vanshi first. I, I think you unmuted a couple of times. Uh, do, do you have comments on this specific uh, paper or the whole LK99 events? Wanchi, if you can unmute, uh, and if not, we'll go to George. What's up, George? Thank you, Alex. A two-part question regarding AI. First, how can AI advance, fast-track this technology? And then the next question would be, how could then room temperature, superconductivity advance AI, especially making it more intelligent? Uh, I, I can... You know, not a scientist here, but I can speculate because I've been like looking at AI for, for a long time. Um, everything is restrained, and a lot of this restraint is just pure energy. Uh, we had folks on stage that talked about the HDX, I think, uh, from NVIDIA, which is like a box that you get, and uh, most of NVIDIA's best chips are stored in there. Uh, and uh, Jensen from um, the CEO of NVIDIA is basically saying they're pulling as much energy, like current, whatever, from the wall as they can, and basically then spreading this on just computation. And this is what this like HGX box essentially is. If we're talking about way more energy being able to get transmitted, we're essentially talking about like whatever percentage X the computing power that we currently have, um, right? Like energy trans translates pretty directly into computation and we're all like energetically constrained. Um, everything blows up and when everything blows up, like the, the current trend lines that we see in AI, they also like accelerate significantly faster. The current trends we see in AI uh, indicate very, very positive things to humanity. Like you can listen to Mark Andreessen. Uh, you can listen to some boomers as well. I don't want to really don't want to get distracted here because we, we are talking about like the energetical breakthrough. However, uh, many of the positive things that we expect AI to do in the world now accelerate uh, significantly. If again this replicates, and if you know if they can use this energy for uh, for computation. 
You know, if this does replicate, what it allows generative models to do is to come up with new material preparation techniques, new synthesis techniques, new production techniques, um, basically simulate those techniques that can then be applied and tested by researchers to better place those uh, copper atoms within the lead structure. So to get a more realist, uh, more reliable and more predictable method of placement of mm -hmm. copper atoms within the lead mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I hear, uh, mm. hi, can you talk? I, I don't think we can hear you, but or somebody can you hear Ranchi? All right, no, let's, let's get some other folks in here. Um, so, uh, sorry, Joseph, you mentioned, sorry, I was just like doing some logistics here on the space. Uh, you mentioned, uh, yeah, that it's okay. You've been doing this a long time. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sorry. I, I got distracted because I had to kick somebody off and then so many requests that people don't want to come up and I'm trying to do this as I'm speaking. However, um, it's not only about the simulation of the materials that, that you mentioned kind of scientifically, right? We, the, the current models that we currently have in, in, in you know, language, the modulate language, uh, many of the folks who work on them, they talk about their ability to like uh, uh, simulate a reality within themselves or like have a build a world model essentially, right? Uh, the size of these models is restricted not only based on the size of the text of the internet, I think uh, everybody's already trained models on most of the text on the internet, but now these models are, are moving into multi-model world, right? Uh, models that yeah. understand not only text, but also like video and heat and, and, and movement, etc. And now these models are a little bit like um, underpowered essentially because they need to spread this uh, this computation towards all of this. And so we need to train them on much more data. And there's many scientists that can get them otherwise, but like there are scaling laws, et cetera. Like the more data you shove into models, the more performance you get. Uh, and the more multi-model they get, the more they understand the real world. And so now you're talking about AI that can like simulate the real world with, I, I just, for the ease of talking about this, let's say LK99 add like a hundred X, just a hundred X to, whatever, energy output, you know, energy consumption scale, one of the metrics that we have, and this seems like it applies to many, but let's say 100x in one of the metrics, uh, the ability to like can, can produ produce more energy to the wall. Um, if this, just this one thing uh, jumps 100x, then the models that we're gonna get um, essentially pretty directly also get to 100x. Uh, we're already sitting on a exponential scale of progress in AI because, you know, the GPUs get better twice every, I don't know, 16 months or something crazy like this. The the amount of papers that on AI, like we're talking about archive papers today, right? We came in here and said, hey, a respectable scientist from the United States replicated or sorry, simulated some parts of LK99 and it looks more legit than it looked yesterday. And we're sitting here talking about the, these archives. The amount of archives uh, archive papers on AI uh, has also grown exponentially. There's always like more performances. Uh, open source models that we now will be able to run in 100x better at home uh, are already beating GPT-3 and GPT-4. Uh, this is like another exponential scale. And now we're essentially riding the exponential wave, even with just like limiting our imagination, let's say for just 100x of what we currently have. Uh, if this comes fast, this is like, you know, uh, really hard to predict uh, the quality of this. I agree with you. What I'm saying is how we get LK99, if it is provable, if it is validated, 
how we get LK99 to LK99 at 100x, right? So it's going to be something like a flywheel where we get LK99. If it's validated, that's the basic template, right? And then generative models that are doing physical simulations, whether it's MATLAB or some other FEA approach, is going to come up with new approaches to improve the reliability of LK99, which gets you to LK99 at 2x, at 5x, at 10x. So these models are going, so basically supercomputing is going to improve superconductivity far quicker than superconductivity will improve supercomputing, if that makes sense, in the short term. And then in the long term, supercomputing will be massively improved by superconductivity. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, we're, we're seeing we're seeing exponential acceleration here for sure. Um, yeah, manifold. You've been up here for a while. Give us an update. <laughs> what are the numbers saying? Uh, and manifold market for those folks who don't know is a, like a prediction market where people go and say um, maybe manifold can present themselves. But uh, tell us the tell us the score. What are folks? Uh, yeah, one sec. Let me take a look. Our site seems to be working fine now. By the way, um, it's currently still at fifty percent, so it's like starting to stabilize around there. It seems. 50%, right? So it's a con like a towing cost, whether or not we are like climbing a new step on the Kardashev scale of civilization, or, you know, somebody doesn't replicate it and so fast and somebody's like lying. But I don't see a lot of ways out of this that are unknown. Um, I want to get some more folks up here. Uh, let me let me take a look. And I think uh, I can go for like maybe 20 more minutes. I'm getting a little window here, folks. Uh, some folks texted me. There's many people who want to talk. Let's get some folks up here. I want to get Alex Wang. I think I saw you in the comments and you were excited. And Kevin, what's up, Alex? Uh, hi, uh, I just want to get more material science guys to uh, speak. I think there should be someone down there. Uh, so the method in this paper is uh, sort of classical method. I remember my friend who was doing superconductor simulation. Uh, they used to do the simulation, and that simulation used up all the computing power in Octree National Lab. But that work was about 20 years ago. And the, super, uh, the quantum computer can now do the simulation of the structure uh, for very simple uh, structure like a benzoyl benzene uh, structure, but not, not this LK99 thing. So does any material science guys uh, can comment on this? Yeah, I don't know who, who material science guys we have left uh, up on stage to, to ask questions, but Ben, take can this you, one. Can you repeat you the question again? Well, the method used in this simulation, in this paper, uh, I assume it's using classical method using supercomputer, right? So, uh, what about like quantum computer? They are using it for simulation as well, simulation of structures. Uh, how, how, I actually how don't know if they, uh, you mean the Berkeley scientist, the paper that we did like Saturday? That's right. It's quantum simulator. I'm actually not sure that I saw that. No, it's a, it's a conventional supercomputer cluster they're using, surely. Um, I don't think quantum computers are at the point where they can simulate th that size of structure, but I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, we're definitely looking at improvement of, of that area of simulation. There was uh, somebody, I hope during the audience, uh, Mikey Shaughnessy, I think, he had a whole thread about how much we would have to simulate to get to LK99. He, was, he, he talked a lot about like 
the, the chances of this uh, being able to simulate is like 100 million, some crazy number. Uh, it's rather than viral, and I don't know if people, yeah, 100 million years basically around it to be able to simulate this, even if we give a lot more power to our computing. I don't know if Mike is here and wants to comment. If it's not, I think if it's all right with you folks, I'm kind of done for tonight. This was great. We talked about this. Um, we're not, I'll try to summarize this in, in the briefest way that I can. We today saw two simulation confirmations, right? So not a replication, not somebody creating the, the, the holy grail material, the unobtainium. Oh, yeah, I have to leave you with something. If, if you want to like to understand the scope of what we're talking about, watch Avatar again. They're kind of talking about this. The whole thing about Avatar is that, you know, humanity goes to the other planets <laughs> and then pillages them for LK-99, if LK-99 is actually the real deal, right? So watch Avatar and kind of uh, extrapolate from there uh, if you need imagination unlock. But uh, we've seen two simulations from respectable labs, one from Berkeley, one from China, uh, they basically say, like, the, the path is right. It, it does seem like LK-99, the superconductor at room temperature and ambient pressure, uh, at least uh, exudes some properties. We're currently also seeing a lot of replication attempts. Some are, like, gung-ho on Twitter, and they tell us what they do, and many of them are in labs around the world that don't tell anyone what they do. Uh, and those replication attempts are trying to follow at least three different papers that one of them was in Korean and is now getting translated slowly and other two um, that we saw a few days ago. And if this actually shakes out, this is what we're all watching. This is at least a Nobel Prize endeavor to the authors. Uh, not sure which of the authors. There's several and we've talked about the drama. And if you want to follow the drama, uh, hit me up on, I think, on my profile. Uh, my subtext should be somewhere there. Uh, I wrote like a whole uh, summary of the drama that we had uh, from two days ago. Uh, so we also want to focus on the human element here. And uh, the world is like basically waiting for this thing to exist because if it exists, we had multiple folks here on stage. They talk about the potential of uh, a material like this to exist from uh, MRIs and uh, fusion reactors at the current iteration of how we use these very expensive things to AI getting, you know, way, way, way more better, and we talk about the AI in, in separate space, uh, and basically impacting all of humanity. So the world is like waiting, we're all watching together. I would encourage you to kind of follow this list that I have with like LK99 folks, I've been trying to maintain this, this is how uh, some of the experts show up up in here in, in, in spaces. Many folks translate from different world, uh, the internets basically from Korean and from Chinese, and uh, if you have recommendations who to add, there's only like 20 people on this list, uh, definitely DM me. Oh, at this guy. They're talking about LK99. Uh, we'll hold more spaces on this. Probably there's going to be more folks talking about replication attempts. We had uh, Andrew McCallick from Varda Space in, in here. He's currently replicating this material and live streaming on Twitch. And so this live stream should produce some sample, I think, tomorrow. Uh, there's many. Uh, if you look through the pin tweets, the last one talks about the Russian scientist uh, Iris, I think uh, her name is, uh, which tried to replicate this in her uh, first kitchen <laughs> with the tiny speck sample that she claimed she reproduced, and with a kill in her living room. So it's not like it's like a mad scientist type thing. Uh, so we see this publicly live on Twitter, and hopefully, uh, folks don't heckle that scientist to death because it's clearly a scientist and clearly doing something. So we've seen a potentially replication attempt. However, many big labs around the world right now. Argon Lab and some other places, they're definitely working on replicating uh, this material. Whether or not 
they failed to do so. Uh, effectively, Fox on stage also said it does not mean that you know there's nothing there. Uh, and today's papers uh, showed that there's definitely a good direction. So we're looking somewhere that you know the humanity hasn't been before. Abundance of energy means a lot of things, just a lot, just like an impossible amount of like predict what abundance of energy means or what it means for geopolitics, where like a lot of it is like uh, energy related, right? Middle East or uh, oil, like all of this. Uh, a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the sorry, I just saw Iris just posted something in a second. Uh, hopefully, it's not a replication, you know, example as we speak because I, I, I do want to go to sleep. But a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff is solved. Geopolitics is solved. AI is getting better. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff. So uh, we'll wrap up here and i think i thank you all of you for for joining uh feel free to follow this list of folks there's fine folks on stage here uh there's fine uh andrew who was here is a great science communicator if you work in this field definitely hire him to like help you in, in imagination unlock and uh yeah i thank all of you thank you and good night let's hope for some incredible news very soon cheers